Hey guys, we have Damian Lewis coming on this episode, but before we get to Damian, Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender with hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Before I give out the website, we are converting some new people. I mean, we had Jason Piccolo on the last episode, Border Patrol agent, uh, Army combat veteran. And I saw yesterday he just ordered for the first time from Fort Scott. He's like hearing about him on the podcast. I got to start shooting with him. And he's a big gun guy. He is he is convinced there is going to be a shot show next year because he talked to the organizer. I'm a little bit weary I, if it's going to happen, but I'm just glad to see that we're convincing yeah, people yeah. to get on board with I, Fort they, Scott. Do good. I had a range. I'll keep it short, but I had a, a class this weekend in, in the Creed area, South Chicago, and yeah. again, ammo ran great, fantastic. Just to just give it time because, like everybody else, they're short on ammo. Um, they're just they're trying to keep up with their orders, but that says a lot for them because if people order their stuff. It's it's the best ammo. I, I honestly believe it's the best ammo uh, in the country by far, and the the family's tremendous, and the work group's tremendous. A lot of integrity there, so. Give a look at it. And they have a promotion right now with a couple of Tano's toolboxes of guns. They're, they're running promotions. Yes, I saw. Yeah. I was actually on FortScottMunitions.com last night because I was looking. They have awesome yeah. hats. I was checking <laughs> out the hats, which I might order one. Um, but I saw right at the top of the site, big promotion with Tonto's toolbox. Uh, yeah, giveaway, right? Two of them. And, and um, you know, they of course, they can do whatever they want with them. But they, they, they stand behind me. They may, Actually, they make the battle line shirts as well. If you feel enough, Fort Scott makes our, our battle line. Not the podcast shirts, they're made by American Trigger Pullers, but out of line cat. Yeah, the one that you're wearing, even though people yeah, don't sorry. see it. We're both right, rocking right, the red for remember everyone but, deployed. Um, yeah, but they, yeah. they make it. So they're 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 in all sorts of uh, all sorts of different different areas within the tactical world, but their ammo is where they started from and it's give it a try. And and uh, they have plenty of five plenty of five five six. When I say plenty, they have stuff that they can send out to you five five six right now, which is pretty much the most common load at, at, on the rifle carving side and then nine mil. You can get your nine mil. Just you know, wait. you have to wait a few weeks, but it'll get to you, and you'll be happy with it. I love those guys. I stand behind them. Great people. And uh, you were saying how they're running low on everything, but one thing I can say because I've been looking at other ammo sites and just seeing what other people are doing, they're not price no. gouging or anything like that. You're getting stuff at the same price plus a discount if you go with us. So if you're stocking up on ammo, this is really the only site you need. Uh, Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in every state. As I always say, if your state still has a second amendment at this point with, with the way things are going, um, as well as direct online, of course, through fortscottmunitions.com, where you can use our promo code, which is BattleLine, for 15% off your order, only available to listeners of the BattleLine podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Tonto, of course, BattleLine Tactical, and this podcast. Let's get right into everything.
From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City. From planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space. A podcast with no equal. Engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. (laughs) You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The Switch is on, Battleline Podcast, we have Damian Lewis coming on this episode. Hopefully everything sounds good. I will let the audience know this is the first time we're ever using Squadcast. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about this, the reason we're no longer in studio right now. I Chris knows this. I was very insistent on us being in the heart of New York City, having a studio. And the reason why, and you know, Chris knows this once again, is like, if you're in that Midtown area, everyone who has a book... Everyone who has a movie out, whatever they're doing, they're there to promote it. And I know so many people from my time in the industry that's like I could email or text Mike Bins from WellCal and say, hey, you have, I don't know, Roger Stone in studio? Let's get Roger Stone. I'll I'll talk to Roger Stone. You know, whoever happens to be in studio, whoever has something that's of interest to us and the way things are right now, that has all changed. So there's no reason really to be in New York. Like luckily we got Jason James Powell to come in studio, but yeah, no one is coming in right now to promote anything. And this squadcast seems to have great audio quality. So that's really what we're going with. It's, it's kind of sad, but there's nothing you could do about it. I mean, I do miss being in that part of uh, the media capital, just in that you can get everybody who's in town to come on the show, meet them in studio, actually shake hands um, but now everything, I mean, whether it's Howard Stern or, you know, whatever podcast you listen to, the only person still doing things in person, even though he now moved to Texas, is Joe Rogan just set up his studio in Texas. But for the most part, this is the way it's being done. I look forward to being back in studio with people, but this is kind of how we're changing things up. Well, a little if you, bit. Maybe one day you get your own studio, like Joe Rogan, at your house, and then you have, then really yeah. you're not going anywhere. So we put a little asterisk right you have to get yeah, you have to get people to come out. You know what I was I was actually I never even mentioned this to you. I was thinking about it because you were like you were saying you live close to Larry the cable hey, guy. Hey, I'm hey. like, we could probably get Larry the cable guy to come to your house and do an in-studio yeah. show. That would be I awesome. I think about that. I guess when I'm home, I just think about being home. Like, I don't want no beer out. Hey. Do you think he would come by? Do you think if you were like his, I know his real name's not Larry, but if you were Larry, like Larry, if, if he's, he's in Lincoln, he lives in Lincoln. It's about thirty minutes away, so he's Lincoln. But but um, I'm not gonna pro- I'm not gonna Shoot promise guns, anything. Let's just, just, just be pleasantly surprised if it ever happens. We're not disappointed if it, never, <laughs> if it never. But that's a good idea. I guess I just never. I never. I can't, when I'm home, I never think about it. When I'm home, it's like okay, here's my Zen place. Leave me the f alone. I'm. <laughs> I don't even have like cookouts and gatherings and, and that's why I have, a, I have a fantastic wife is she doesn't she doesn't have to you know you, you get families and husbands and wives that not have to entertain we're not entertainers at all it's like we're home leave us alone i don't want you coming over no no i need to be no you're not coming over even <laughs> yeah be something that we think about down the down the road here and especially uh i've never talked to the guy 
Uh, we're not like buddies or anything, but from what I understand, you, I met him once. And that's right. Cool. I, we, we use the same studio. He, he does all his uh, Mater stuff for cars. That's the same studio I do my my reads for my uh, my audiobooks. It's the same studio. Great, great studio here. Wait, you know what? I didn't even realize that you did. Actually, I randomly came across it. I didn't realize you did the full yeah. audiobook for oh. um the Ranger Creed. Right, not Patriots Creed. You did pa- for a Patriots mix Creed and the Ranger Way. Yeah, oh, I did okay. the audiobook for both. Um, uh, the Patriots. How much of because I do I do audiobooks as as you know and I, even I will say it's it how much of a fan it is it, it, it is it, you're reading I, I kind of, the guy that, that does it here in Omaha the studio he, he's you know of course he's done it forever so he makes it fun great guy but yeah it's it's like I, mine took two days so it's two days about it's so hard getting yeah, it, it, it it's oh I, it takes me way more than two days I like I'm working on Jim West's audiobook and you know I do like a chapter you, every you know what though because and, it's mine though and I know how words the, the tone I had when I was writing it I think it's a little easier because I, I know what tone when I read it I know what tone I was thinking in my head when I was writing it so I get that same tone and and um also you you, you know this is just as good as I do when you you have to get used that when you make a mistake you can just go back and read it again Instead of feeling like a dog, yeah. when I first, I'm like, oh shit, I messed up. And be like, stop saying it. Just go back and read it again. I'm like, you can edit that quick. Is how yeah, we can edit that quick. Just if you mess it up, read it again. <laughs> and once you get in that flow, yeah. it goes. So I, I think mine, I, there's a little caveat next to mine for doing it in two days. Cause again, it's, it's my words. So I kind of know what I, how it needs to, to sound and it comes out, it comes out correctly because I know what's intended to sound like. Where if I was reading somebody else's, I think it'd be a little bit harder. It really would. Cause, cause you're just, it, it could also be partially because I'm doing yeah. the editing. And you're doing the, so I'm doing everything. You know? So you you may be very OCD. I gotta get this right because you know what? Yeah. So right. when I, I can leave it to another. I also want to get it right. I don't want to. I you know even like when Jim was on the show, he's like every word is precise, and it, it is. is. You know, I want to make sure I get all that stuff right. And there's also so many different types of martial arts that I have to yeah. make sure I'm pronouncing this right. But yeah, no, it's been. It's been fun. So you should mention, actually, because we said it in the live read, you just did a course in yep. Illinois. I will say the photos came oh, out the, uh, fucking awesome, man. Their photo, there's a photo of you close up, like, you know, with the trick, you know, hand behind the trigger. And I could even read the yeah. bracelet. Like they did an uh, that it's so high definition. Those came he out. Is, his name's Zachary Stern. He goes by Squatch Media on Instagram, Facebook. He's a professional photographer. He is a big supporter of Battle Line uh, of the ta- so he comes and and um, but I would highly recommend if you ever need somebody to do a photo shoot, get with him, Zachary Stern at Squatch Media, and 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 hire him because he does as, as Ian said, he does a tremendous job, and he's one of the coolest mofos I've ever met. He's all, and he, but he and he has all the gear for it, so he's got the he's got the drone, he's got the cameras, he's a tremendous pistol shooter too, tremendous pistol shooter, so he likes being nice. at the range. But the bottom line is he's so easy to work with. I mean, he doesn't, he just, he's there. Half time, I don't even know he's there. He's taking a shot. I'm like, when, where the hell were you when I was taking? Because he's he's just doing his job. And uh, uh, check him out, Squatch Media. And, and he, he 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 does, anytime he can come to a battle line course and take pictures, he asks, like, stop asking. You can just show up. So he's a. It's also, it's it's got to be a pretty um, ballsy job because, for one, he has to make sure he's not getting <laughs> no. in your way because you're in the middle of teaching a class. But at the same time, he wants yeah. to get that muzzle. He wants to get all of that in the frame, and he's right in front of you. I mean, he's it, these aren't just photos from the back of yeah. you shooting because I have photos like that of me at SHOT Show. These are photos that you were zoomed right in 
you know, on the muzzle, on your finger, on the tray, getting all that's every the detail. professionalism of, of him. Yeah. And, and he will, if he's, he will ask if there's a shot I'm going to do and he's going to get pretty close to the muzzle, he'll say, he'll, he'll say, can I get, can I get right there? And I'll say, yeah, of course. And then I said, just watch it. If I start moving, it's on you. You got to start moving and getting out of the way. But he's been doing it for so long now, as far as in the tactical world and taking pictures. Because he works, uh, you know, he works with the VOD Defense, the gentleman, Daniel Lombard, that I caught with. Yeah. He does many pictures for him. He works with DS Arms, which is a big gun company there in uh, in West in the west suburb of Chicago area. Um, so he's been around enough to know that I'm catching him when he's seasoned. Maybe when he was a rookie, maybe he was always getting in the way. But I think he's learned where he needs to be in position. But he does. He's he's smart. It's there's there's there is a a part of uh, there is a possibility of error, and you never want error when gums are involved because that's when somebody gets hurt. So he's he's he knows what he's doing, and he will ask. Like I said, those ones that gets right by the muzzle, he'll say, "I'm going to be right here." And all I tell him is like, "Okay, fine. I'm I'm not going to shoot you. Just I may start moving. So just keep keep going <laughs> left or right." And but the pictures turn out amazing and i said i i highly recommend if you need him for anything photography wise not just on the gun range anything iron and it's just his personality he's just you want a photographer i've been with some that are just bossy as hell they're not fun like stand here i know he just go do your thing i'll take the pictures i'll edit them and they're going to be awesome and obviously they are and again just another lucky thing i fell in with with a good photographer that for battle line tactical he does a great job and him and imap studios there in chicago Cow brothers do a great job. They took some pictures while we were there as well. Yeah, no, it has to do with your professionalism too, of of kind of keeping that distance. And yeah, I just think it's 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 kind of crazy because as someone who's been to gun ranges, you do not get in front of a shooter by no means. This is the one time it's okay. And that's the way I run ranges though, too. I don't I'm not a I said I'm not a range Nazi. There's there's enough range Nazis out there. When you have a range Nazi, yes, safety is important. It is but safety is important and there's certain steps or risk assessments you can do to still be safe where it's not just, just never be downrange. Um, Cause there are times that you, you may have to be offset when you're shooting. You can't always be online. When you start developing that range safety, range Nazi mentality, and that's how you teach. Then you get guys that are proficient at the range. People that come to battle line courses, they're not coming to be proficient at the range. They're coming to be proficient if they ever have to be in a situation where they, they need to address a threat in their home, on the street, so forth. And again, but I always pref- preface it with, you never, don't get in your, don't make yourself be in this situation. Don't put yourself in a situation where you have to yeah. use your gun ever. That's the last step. Try to get through everything first. But if you do, this is what you need to be aware of. And this is what could happen. I need you to get used to these things. And, and because again, you, you're going to rescue your daughter or your son that's in the room down the hallway and there's a threat in between you. Well, guess where that bullets could be going into that area where your, where your loved ones are. So you have to be able to, to mentally, mentally be ready for that. And um, that's why when we go to a range, I do, I, I, there, there are some times where we're offset, but I always make sure there's enough dead space between people. Dead space being the space and not being dead. <laughs> dead space is a term, which means there's enough space between people that if somebody's yeah. in front of the other person, you know, there's there's enough leeway that you have to really switch over if you're going to shoot your buddy in the back. And it's not going to happen. And we have OCs. We have instructors with all the all the people as well. So if that happens where there is a there is a, mis- a mistake being a trip or a fall, which it happens, um, that they're there to a hey, muzzle and they're pointed downrange. But, you know, 
most people are so proficient with their weapons. Even I had one guy fall. We were doing a movement and he fell. And it was awesome because he fell and without even thinking, he moved his muzzle in a safe direction. And I was like, oh my, you know what? That was the best part of this whole dry set. I said, not your shooting, you're very accurate, not your movement. It would look good until you fell. Um, but I said, what was awesome is that you knew where your muzzle needed to go. And I said, that's that's learning right there. And if you have a flat range mentality, which I call, which is just online standing shooting, you don't get that sort of training and you, and you don't get that that habitual movements where you, you need to be safe with that muzzle, where if you're able to move and do dynamic movements on a range, where you're able to obtain that that proficiency. So uh, that's awesome. And Creek, they let me do that. You know, they let me be able to do that. And, and um, they let me let us be able to 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 do what we need to do and still have safety. And I have plenty. Like I said I have plenty of instructors there with me, even if it's not Ben and Benny, battle line instructors, season to watch everybody to make sure that we're we're being safe. But yeah, brother, I, I I can't wait to you come out. You're gonna have fun when when you finally are able to come out. You're yeah, no, I definitely. <laughs> I yeah, definitely. I mean, look, the main didn't happen, but the next time there's something in an area where I am, like I, you know, I was kind of saying it with the studio stuff, but I don't necessarily know if I'm staying in New York right now. I'm, I may move. I may not. Um, but, you know, wherever I go, I will definitely try to attend one. When for the for the listeners, when is the next um, battle on course that you'll yeah. be at? When's the next one that Ben Morgan is teaching? It'll be 18th and 19th. We have two more slots open, though, then we're full. Um, we we um, we're up, I think, around I, I try to get it's an indoor range. So it's a little bit less, it's a little bit more restrictive. Indoor ranges are as far as safety, and they have to be because it's an indoor, because you have ceilings and so forth. Um, but that being said, we we have uh, 20. I can take 22 because we can split the groups up, and I have a line where we can put 11 people on the line. So, yeah. So, um, Shreveport, 18th and 19th of this month. And, again, hurry up, sign up if you want to come because I only have two slots left. And it's it's Chris Tonto Peranto dot com dot net, right? yeah, net, dot or, net. or you can even go okay. Battleline Tactical dot and, net and it's going to pop up the same thing. it'll pop up through the drum page. I'm grabbing my phone because I just realized as I was going through I, I posted this morning um, Andre Olavsky wearing a Battleline podcast. That's shirt, awesome! Did cool. he? And then we also got an email. Yeah, yeah, he he was training did in his Battleline same one I'm wearing right now. The red. Yeah, yeah, awesome. the red Battleline podcast <laughs> shirt. We also have, uh, I, I got to post it up on Instagram a few days ago. A guy emailed me and he goes, hey, do you do you mind if I make a Battleline podcast sticker for my car? I promise I'm not going to sell them or anything. And I was like, of course. And he's got a big Battleline podcast on the back of his pickup truck. I'm like, hell yeah, that it's stuff. awesome. That's where it started, man. Yeah, I got to post that. But uh, yeah, the reason I grabbed my phone is because I reposted on Facebook those great pictures um, that were done at the range um, from the last course. And I figured I might, you know, this wasn't an email, but I figured I'd get it into the show because it is a, a gun question and we're sure. on the topic. So Todd Jacobs actually wrote on here, um, I write with my right hand. I learned how to shoot a rifle left-handed. It came easier. Didn't learn how to shoot right-handed until I trained that way. Do you think it's important to know how to shoot a pistol right oh, yeah. and left-handed? Well, I, 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 yeah, no, definitely. You, you have to be proficient at both. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I have a hard time shooting my left hand. I do, but I suck at it. Um, but I still have to work at it. So, uh, like I, I, you know, I did a post on Instagram a, a couple of days ago. You know, it's it's good to be good at one thing, but isn't it good to be good at everything? And that's that's it. You, so you have to train yourself with that with both hands. And you know, then you get people that are right-handed, but they're left-eye dominant. And and Ben Morgan's the same way. He's a great instructor to teach people that way as well. Where you have to adjust 
to shoot with your left eye. But I said, well, you know, got to work on shooting the other eye to shooting with the other eye as well. So you're proficient at it all. But that being said, definitely. No, you, you, you know, that's, that's, that is something that proficiency comes with practice and I can shoot left-handed. I can even shoot finger right-handed. My, I'm a, I'm a right-handed shooter shoot with my right finger on the trigger, moving my left shoulder and shoot with my right finger still on the trigger. I've just taught myself before switching hands to go into my left hand with the rifle and with the pistol. Again, you just toss hands back and forth, just right hand, left hand. So no, this definite, you, you should, and you should go out to the range when you go dry fire with that left hand and then shoot a few rounds. So whenever you go shoot with your right hand, you should always do a few rounds with your left hand and vice versa if you're left-handed. So um, always, always become proficient on everything. Uh, so when you need it, you can adequately and effectively, effectively use whatever, whatever hand, whatever, whatever tactic you're using efficiently, right, left-handed, kneeling, standing, laying down, standing on your head, twirling around. I were getting about that, not twirling. <laughs> um, that being said, yeah, always, always, always train on, on everything. And, and, you know, but being right-handed, you know, I, I only know a few right-handed and left-handed shooters that are good, equally as good with both hands. Um, just how it goes. I mean, but work at it so you still can engage targets with that left hand because that right hand might break. That right hand might get shot. That right hand, you might punch somebody and break your knuckle. I mean, it's, it weirder things have happened that you may need to use your left hand and vice versa if you're left handed. So definitely, definitely. Good, good answer, man. And I should throw out there if you guys ever have questions for the podcast, battleline podcast at gmail.com. I want to make sure uh, we we give Damien enough time. So before we get to Damien, as always, Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring they receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. If you go to a battle line tactical course, you guys yep. are always shooting Fort Scott. So, yeah, Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states, as well as direct online through fortscottmunitions.com, F-O-R-T-S-C-O-T-T-M-U-N-I-T-I-O-N-S.com. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. And uh, joining us for this episode, Damian Lewis, best-selling author. Uh, let's get right to him. So joining us for the first time on BATTLELINE podcast, Damian Lewis. And I should throw out there... Um, we've had international guests technically because we've had Debbie Rashan in Canada, but you are the first overseas guy we've had from the UK. And, and to give some background, best-selling author, award-winning historian, and war reporter with two decades of experience reporting from war zones. The latest book right here, we don't have video for you guys, but I'm putting it up for us, is Churchill's Hellraisers, The Secret Mission to Storm a Forbidden Nazi Fortress, out now on Kensington Publishing. The book really dives into the British SAS and kind of the early special operations of World War II. And 
first thing actually uh, I wanted to ask is, you know, just looking at the entire series of books that you've written over the years, which is dozens and dozens of books, you have so many about early special operations, World War II, uh, the Nazis fighting the Nazis. What, where did the fascination start and, and, you know, you getting to the history of all this? I guess in a way it kind of started from, well, two things. First of all, I was a war reporter. So, you know, 20 years reporting from all those places you can imagine. So war was kind of in the blood. And then um, I met a, uh, a, a survivor of the SAS and the Long Range Desert Group and the SBS from World War II, a guy who's still with us, and he's now 97. Wow. An, ama an amazing man called Jack Mann. And um, just a quick indication of what he was like. We met in the Victory Services Club in London, which is a, a club for veterans. And um, we had dinner, and he was probably in early 90s at the time, maybe 91, 92. And as we got up to leave, he had to walk down a kind of alleyway between two rows of tables where people were eating. And a guy came the other way, he was probably in his 50s, and blocked Jack's way. And Jack squared his shoulders, and he had his SAS and Long Range Desert Group badge on his blazer and his tie on, his SAS tie. And he just said to the guy, I'm bigger than you are. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy, who was 50, 60, 40 years younger than him at least, <laughs> stepped out the way. And I thought they don't like make them like that anymore. So yeah, that's kind of part of the reason why I thought these 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 guys need to be written about whilst there are still a few alive. So you did a lot of this stuff, and I, I didn't know this, Damien. Did you do a lot of the books about the SES after in the war reporting, or was it in be, in between? I, I I thought I thought yeah. it was the other way around. To be honest with you, no, no. So I I, I was a war reporter uh, when I was a lot younger. So I'm I, I'm. Not as old as Jack Mann, but I'm pushing it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I was, you know, 20, 21 when I first went out to crazy parts of the world. Um, you know, it's, it's, war reporting is a young man's game. You guys know that. You know, it's something you do when you don't have kids, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have a family, you don't have a wife, certainly. And, uh, you know, you're not too afraid of getting shot at. And I, 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 I've got, you know, all those things have changed my life. I'm terrified of being shot at. <laughs> I've got a wife and kids and a mortgage. So, <laughs> Yeah, so, so I stopped the war reporting, and, and I now write books about war instead. You can tie in your own experiences and bring some realism to it. it. Really does. Do you know that you're absolutely right? The the point about it is because I also write about modern day general elite forces operations, and I tell you one thing, right? When I sit down with former Navy SEALs or SAS guys, whoever they might be, although I've never been, you know, I was always using a camera sure. in in a war zone. They they were using weapons. But we've got exactly the same access point, exactly the same experience. When I've got these guys in my office and they're, I'll be frank with you, often they're crying their eyes out because they've got post-traumatic stress. I, 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 I see you. I get it. <laughs> they're talking about stuff they've, they've probably never spoken to anyone else about before, and I can relate, and I know exactly how they feel. So um, I, I think, you know, if, if you're going to write about the horrors of war, you know, the, the the incredible courage of war, the bravery, the suffering, and all those things. You've you've really got to have experienced it to do, to it, do it correct to the best you can. Yeah, give it to yeah. give it justice. You definitely and, yeah. Absolutely. And the, the gentleman from the past wars. I mean, that's what made me want to join. Was reading about old rangers. Actually, the uh, last Darby Ranger, and I, I may write his book uh, next year. He passed away a few days ago. He was the last guy with Colonel oh, Darby. Really? And I, I know, B, you being you being uh, with the SAS guys, you know that 
that's who made the Rangers during World War II. That's who. That, Absolutely. So, um, yeah, we, we. So the commandos yeah. and the SS trained those guys up in Scotland. Yeah. So, and that's when they were throwing story, real grenades and real. They were real. Yeah. Believe yeah, me, the, the old Carver, and I mean, his name was Les, and I, I met him uh, last year. A great guy, and he was. I, I couldn't believe he was more happy to meet me. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're a legend. You're you, you started the Ranger Battalion with with Colonel Darby. But to, to listen to his stories about how they were trained to become Rangers by the SAS guys and how the fisticuffs took place after the training as well. I said, oh, yeah, we get. But then we then we'd hug on each other. It was amazing to hear those stories and for you to write that book, with, uh, you know, about the, the about SAS. And, and it, it honestly reminded me of less. It reminded me of Colonel Darby, reminded me of the Ranger lineage that I'm attached to. And um. I yeah, know you're, you're exactly right and to hit those guys, hit those guys and give them the, the recognition they deserve. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's admirable and it's admirable that you have that insight too, as far as the, uh, as far as doing the war. Yeah. Cause, because the, the, there's less and less of them around. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. every, you know, yesterday I put a post out on Facebook because a guy I was supposed to interview, who's a, parachute regiment an SAS World War II veteran who did a did the memorial jump into Normandy oh wow tandem jump yeah literally about a year ago yeah. he he passed, passed away, away sadly two days ago and um I was supposed to go and interview him you know um just to capture his story if there were you know if not to write a book and because of lockdown I couldn't go yeah. and now he's passed away that's a classic example of how just those few months mean that that man yeah. has, you know, passed and his stories, you know, um, have gone with him. And, and this is happening every week, every week that we live now. Yeah, I, I never lose sight of that. I mean, in my with my history, I've gotten the chance to interview several Pearl Harbor survivors. I've I've met probably somewhere between half a dozen to a dozen Holocaust survivors. And I never lose sight of the fact that, like, we're the last people who gets to meet these guys, you know, a, a child today, unless in the next couple of years, they get a chance to meet someone who experienced World War II. This is it. We got to have those stories live on, whether through podcasts, through books, because the next generation needs to hear about it. Yeah, they do. And the, 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 the amazing thing about World War II that always strikes me, people often ask me, why, why, why write so much about World War II? Well, I'll tell you why. It, it, it remains a absolute unique conflict because so many of the guys that I write about and so many of the guys you will have met when you speak to the veterans, before the war, they were miners or they were <laughs> coalmen or they were bus drivers or they were teachers or they were jockeys or they were actors. They were not in the military and they volunteered in their thousands in the hundreds of thousands and they signed up and they fought in you know a truly world conflict for for for, for the survival of civilization okay and they did that with no military experience when they first went in and that's the extraordinary thing about it and so you end up in these situations which you know um i write about an awful lot where you have you'll have a british lord you know to the manor born okay commanding a bunch of street toughs from glasgow yeah and and every every individual in between from every background you can imagine but somehow they pull together and they do so because they knew that was a conflict for 
survival of civilizations, for survival of all the things we believe in. So that makes it a very, very special time to be writing about. It, it does. They don't have, we don't have a generation. Is that the greatest generation? I don't have that anymore. And we talk to him when I talk to him personally, and I get a chance to meet a lot of those those old World War II guys, whether it's 101st or from the from the Ranger Regiment. Um, you know, it, it instills in me the 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 drive to just be better because we're always I, I I know in the military, I know especially at Ranger Regiment, we talk to Darby's guys, or we talk to guys even from the later later wars, whether it be the Korean or the Vietnam War. It's amazing to us that how well they did their job with the minimal resources they had. And they just pressed yeah. on. It's like, oh my gosh, I, Tell me we got it. all this cool Tell gear, and it. they did it with all this, all this gear yeah. that we have. And you know, I, I, yeah, I, that's one time when I, when I was on a rooftop, and I didn't know if guys were coming. I just thought about those guys. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. these guys did it. I got to go another hour. These guys have been. They, they sat in foxholes for a week, no, no support. Yeah. Like are they, or they were in the jungle, dropped off for two weeks. There was nobody coming. It's like I can suck it up and go a little bit longer. And it was always good to think yeah. about those guys to, to remind myself that, yeah, stop being a puss. These guys, these guys, <laughs> these guys are incredible. So I, I really appreciate that you, you immortalize. And the SAS guys, we work with them quite regularly um, at the Ranger yeah. Regiment, and they are they are hard as nails. And you mentioned SBS. Most people in America don't know what SBS is. So I, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll let you roll with that one. Tell everybody. Okay. I think they're just SAS. They don't know there's an SPS. Yeah. And I worked with a guy named Mo from SBS. And he would actually uh, train me when I was at the agency. So could you could you go on what SBS is for our young guys out there that, that follow the military? We got a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So so um during the Second World War, when the SAS was founded, um they realized re reasonably quickly, like you were saying, they were making it all up as they went along. We these were the guys who who founded the whole concept, the special forces. And as you know. When, when Delta was founded in the States, and, and I know uh, one of the guys yeah. who actually came over to the UK to be put through the yeah. SAS selection course to model, you yeah. know, American Special Forces selection. on. I, I know one of those guys. He's a good friend of mine. He's talked to me about it. And so when they were making up, you know, they were shaping the Special Forces concept in the North African deserts in, 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 in 1942, you know, fighting Rommel's forces. They realized fairly quickly they needed a seaborne force as well. And for that, you needed very different disciplines and possibly different kind of individuals as well. And so as a spin-off from the Special Air Service, they founded the Special Boat Service, which is uh, abbreviated to SBS. And so those two units exist to this day. So the Special Air Service is the you know airborne land, land operations unit, and the Special Boat Service is all operations on or beneath the water. Interesting, though. Don't know if you know this. I'm sure you do. But and I'll be interested how it is in the States, you know, in, the, in, in Britain, because we are a class based society still, however much people argue we're not. And the, the hierarchy, the establishment in Britain during World War Two never warmed to the special forces, the commandos, the SAS and the SPS and the LRDG. And they never warmed to them because they didn't salute necessarily. Officers only, it was merit above rank. Yeah. You had to earn respect. So you, you didn't get saluted and respected unless you earned that in the eyes of your fellow men. They were not always dressed in the smartest of uniforms, quite the opposite. They would wore, wear exactly what they thought they should wear to get the job yeah. done. They would carry any weapon, whether it was German, Italian, Spanish, British, American. They're very fond of the M1 carbine towards Those the end of the brilliant. war. 
They would brilliant weapon, and they would carry any weapon that they could to get the job done. And you know, they robbed banks, and they uh, they <laughs> they broke all the rules of war, <laughs> and they funded their own operations. And, and and in one of the books I've written recently, you know, they'd capture a German and they'd make him their Batman. Yeah. So they'd have Carl, you know, a German prisoner as their Batman looking after their camp. And they'd take him out for ice creams. And and the regular military high, high command just didn't get it. And they certainly didn't like it. So I don't know if you guys know this. I'm, I'm sure you must do. But at the end of the war, so, you know, uh, war's over by August, VE days. By October that year, the SAS had been disbanded, as had the SAS. They got rid of them completely. We don't need them anymore. They were fantastic in a time of war, but now they're just a bunch of reprobates. And they didn't get reformed formally until the 1950s in the Malaya emergency. So for, you know, you could argue it was 10 years, we had no special forces. And if they hadn't been reformed, of course, there would have been no model upon which U.S. US special forces would have been founded also. And that kind of like that 10 year part of of British special forces history is very, very little known about. I guess it's something that people don't shout about because, you know, it was uh, it was it was not our finest hour. Um, you know, what, what a reward for these yeah. people who had given everything and seen so many of their friends and comrades die in the most horrific ways and, and done. You know, some of them had done four or five years of back to back behind the lines operations imagine that four or five years you know sometimes they were doing you know an op- two or three operations a week imagine that over four or five years and the reward they get at the end of it is they have their their, their beloved you know unit that they yeah, found disbanded, disbanded. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know that i didn't know they had it disbanded and, and uh, i i can see though because yeah we have that issue in america not so much anymore uh, because now they've realized that JSOC or Joint Special Operations Command, which Ranger SEALs, Raiders, Delta, SF, is a necessity. And they're the ones that are really fighting most of the wars now. But even First Desert Storm, Norman Schwarzkopf hated hated special operations. Hated them. He they did. Wanted, he did. Because of, because he of, wasn't going to send them in. He, he refused to send them in. And then, can't control them. And then the, they, start, they started dropping the scuds. Yep. Saddam started dropping the scuds on Israel. Yep. And and Schwarzkopf realized that you couldn't find them from the air because yep. he was hiding them in buses yep. and he was chucking them through Iraq at night so you couldn't see them. And so he said, and De La Billiere, the yes. British yep. special head of special operations, went to Schwarzkopf and said, "Look, uh, look, old boy, I think maybe there's a there's a role here for for some for some boots on the ground." And that's why they sent them in. I, I still, that's why they sent them I, in. I, and I, I I remember reading that story, and it didn't shock me either because I was at, I was in at the time. I was a young I was a young private at the time. I was at Ranger Battalion, right. but you, you knew that there there was even at Ranger Battalion, or and I know the guys at group or or guys in in, in, in at, on the teams would tell you you could always feel because even us we were different on the base. We were, were put back in the back corner. Big fences surround our compound. So, you know, every other company, yeah, yeah, yeah. the regular army, you can see and you can't see in our compound. And there was a there yeah. wasn't us and them. And there always will be an us and them. And the training is a lot harder. And the 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 yeah. the uh, the vetting processes are extremely a lot harder, of course. And the, the, the just to maintain that readiness to stay in is, is a lot more difficult, but it should be. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that. You know the that it's all of the regular regular army or the regular units. It's their fault that there's a there because we're a little bit more arrogant too. Yeah, you, we got that swagging like your SAS guy. This hey, I'm bigger than you. I, it stays with you, but it's it's well earned. 
And you know what? And yeah, we, we don't want to fall under regular army ranks. We don't want to fall in the regular military because I don't think any of us feel like we are. And, and there's, I'm not knocking them. It's just, that's just, there's a dichotomy. There's a difference. And, and, and I, we, we put that extra time in to become, you know, to become a little bit more efficient. Let's, let's just say it nicely that, yeah, we're going to say, you know what? Yeah, we've done a little bit more, we've stayed in a little bit longer, or we've done a little bit harder stuff. So I think we're going to be treated a little differently and we're going to have that little bit of arrogance because when it's time to go in, we're going in first and we may not have yeah, it. Exactly. Nothing's going to stop you. Exactly. You're right. We're not going to lose. It's not going to happen. There's people who join the military for all types of reasons, which we've talked about here. And and you've even seen some stuff go viral of, of people being like, why do you join the military? Oh, I hate this. I'm just here to go to college. And, and you do see a lot of that. And I don't think you could tell me better, you know, than I can, but I don't think special operations has that problem. No, they you, you they are not going in for the GI Bill. You're going because you want to go in. And I, it was, you know, I saw it from the top down when they were trying to make everybody the same. I was in when they gave our Black Berets to the whole army when General Shinsheki, that we don't have to edit this out, that ass clown, decided, oh, yeah, well, let's give everybody the, the beret that the guys earn with blood, sweat, and tears. And, and that was when they were trying to, uh, believe me, they were, I, I really believe they were trying to make it, and you can't do that in the military. They're trying to make, hey, we're all the same across the board. Everybody's equal. I'm like, no, no, that's not how it works. And and um, they saw that real quick that it didn't work that way. So, of course, changed the brace to tan. But that extra work that you put in and that stuff that you've talked about in the lineage in the World War II is, I think people, if they don't understand the difference between special operations and then also just the, the, the regular regular units, they need to read those to see how that lineage has come to this point where we're always trying to prove what those guys did in the past that we can do it too. But I ain't gonna lie, I don't even tell me being out in Bastogne, are you kidding me, or somewhere like that with no winter clothes on <laughs> or 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 climbing the cliffs in Normandy? I know I could I've done that. I, I don't know. I, I know I think I'm a pretty tough guy. I'm getting older, but that's a different kind of toughness, man. That is that's just, and, it's I'm ad, I, it just admires it. I'm I'm a big admirer of those units because I'm with the lineage and I can say yeah, I'm part of that lineage, but I still admire those guys that you write about. Like, oh my gosh, how the hell did yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could have done yeah. that, man. It's, it's a it's amazing. Yeah, no, they 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 really, you know, they really pushed the burner and and, and and of course they would they would they were doing stuff that no one had yeah. trialed before. You know, they, they were taking vehicles into environments that had never been taken. Chevrolet trucks, you yeah. know, in the desert, you know, Willys Jeeps, you know, they were bolting machine guns onto them and 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 and, and uh, bazookas and grenade launchers, whatever they could get their hands on. This was making it up as they went along. And, and, and that's what makes it so fascinating. The other thing that, that I love about these kind of stories from World War Two, and I'd be really interested in your take on this being a, a modern U.S. veteran, right? So, for example, in Hellraisers, and it's part of the reason why I wanted to write the story because I'm 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 a bit of a rule breaker myself. <laughs> always have been, as I'm sure you guys are. And uh, it and the, the the guys in command of the mission. So the mission is to go in and take out a, a German army headquarters in Italy to try and stop the, the, the bring the war to a close in Italy in 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 in, in forty two uh, sorry forty four forty five. And uh, the guy goes in, this is the point, he's, he's an SAS major called Roy Farron, already the winner of the military cross two times over. So once uh, for an incredible um, last stand on, on Greece where he gets terribly injured, then he's taken captive. He's held in Greece by the enemy. He escapes 
on one leg. His other leg is, is, is basically, he's on crutches. He escapes, gets back to Allied lines, the most incredible escape story you can ever imagine. He gets his second military cross. And so by now, you know, he's been fighting for four years. And he's one of the SAS's senior commanders, very experienced, Major Roy Farron. And when his men are going to parachute behind the lines in Italy to, to take out this German army headquarters, which in itself is an extraordinary thing oh, to do, because, yeah. you know, these are not, not a classic SAS mission. You know, this is a massive static target with a thousand German troops defending it. He says 40 of his men are going in. And of course, he wants to go in and lead them. And it's the fact it's an American commander, because interestingly, in Italy, the SAS were under American command. OK, and it's American uh, uh, C-47 uh, Dakota Sky Train hmm. America, Dakota and British yes. pilots that are flying them in. It, 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 it's a squadron of C-47s flying them in. And so Farron goes to the left, the U.S. Lieutenant Colonel says, look, sir, um, you know, uh, I, I want to deploy with my men and I want to lead this mission on the ground. And, and the lieutenant colonel says, you've got my blessing for the mission to go ahead, but you cannot go in and lead it. And Farron says, why? He says, because you are too experienced for us to lose. We've lost so many senior SAS commanders in the war. We need you back here. Farron says, OK, sir, I understand. But would you give me permission to fly in with my men to see them off? <laughs> and he bought it. Did the commander, the commander bought that shit? He bought it. Huh? And, the, and the American commander goes, yeah, sure, of course you can. So he gets on the plane, he flies in, and he says to the C-47 crew, who are American, he says, when you get back, you tell everyone I fell out. I was helping dispatch my men and I fell from the aircraft. And he is the first, Roy, Major Roy Farron is the first to jump. And of course, he jumps out of his parachute and all his regalia and, and he gets on the ground and he leads the mission. But the point is, and of course, he faces a court martial yeah, of course. as a result. But the point is, you know, when you read his accounts as to why he had to do that, and when you, you know, when I, 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 I'm, I'm very good friends with his son, who's uh, uh, David, who's in Canada. When you talk to the family, he had to do it because he had to stand tall yeah. in the in the view of his men. And if he hadn't jumped, if he'd just seen them off, you know, would they have thought he'd got windy? Would they have thought it was cowardice? How would he have been? the leader of that or, or, of that unit that so believed in him. Do you get my yeah, drift? Yeah. And it's that that's the reason why he had but to it, go. It wasn't because the, because the mission couldn't happen without him. It wasn't because he didn't have other capable commanders. It's because of the it was because of the camaraderie and the brotherhood. That's why he had to go. It's the morale. I mean, he, he, if he doesn't go, then there could be there could be. I'm not saying there would be, but you never know. But there there's the chance of a dip in morale. And if you have a dip in morale right when the mission starts, you've set yourself up for failure right off the bat because your 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 confidence is gone. Like, why is my commander not coming with me? But when you're leading them out the yeah. front, it's it's just like if you know you think of think of sports games when that when that iconic head football coach leads his team onto the field, that pumps them up. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing just on a grander scale because it's not winning or losing; it's life or death. But that's when you need your commander. As I had a great commander that said, you know, I won't ever ask you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. And, and I know there's been football coaches that have said that. I know there's been, it's been – his name was – actually, his name was General McChrystal. So it was Stanley McChrystal when I was – when I yeah, yeah. when I was yeah. a private yeah. at Range Battalion. Um, and like, well, shit, yeah. Okay, and that, what does that do? That motivation. Okay, let's let's go get it on. Because he knows – he knows that – well, 
He knows he's going to leave, but as a group, we're like, well, he's got our backs. He's got our backs. Let's go get this done. We're in good hands. And then that's one less thing you have to worry about. So it's brilliant. And and to be court-martialed, sure. Because that's just, you don't look at it that way. And it's the same way when, you know, and use use our example, it's the same way when we left, when we left our compound, when we were being told, don't go, don't go, don't go help them. Bullshit. And you're looking at our leader, which was Tyrone at that time. Rowan was a, he, there was no doubt in his mind. He's he's feeding it. He's like, we're going. Who wants to go? You don't have to, but I'm going. Are you going? <laughs> oh hell yeah, we're going. And it just it just gets you it gets you all ready to go. That it, I can even feel the adrenaline right now. Just I remember seeing his face going. Hey man, yeah, you don't have to go, yeah. but, but I'm going. Are you going with me? Fuck, excuse yeah. my language, but fuck yeah, I'm going. And then he yeah, he yeah. leads the car out. The, he leads his car out the gate, and I'm following. Right. So yeah, it, it's it's tremendous to have a leader like that. And I, they still have leaders like that in, in the SOCOMP community. I, I know they do. They still have great leaders on the ground. It's just become now, and I know SES can tell the same thing. They've got it structured now that if you make a certain rank, you're out of that on the ground leadership, and now you're getting up in the headquarters. So they're never going to put you on yeah. that plane to begin with to see your team off. You're, I know where you're at. You're standing right next to me watching all these on the cameras. But that being said, those guys that do that, they've earned the right to be in, in the in the jock, in the Joint Operation Command Center, to be watching everything. They've made that rank. Um, and the ones that don't want to make that rank, they make sure they don't by doing something to not make that rank. <laughs> Yeah, so, but sure. But but you're exactly right, and that's where that's that's the bravado that we saw, and the ones that I read about that made me want to be where I was, what what I want to be at Range Battalion. Well, those kind of guys that were I, I those kind of guys that would get in a little bit of trouble, but they did it on the good of their troops to be, be to take yeah. care of the troops. That's that's amazing. I know that's an amazing story, and like I said it gives me I got chills a little bit because it reminded me of a few things I went through. It's it's awesome to hear that, and that's all. Um, my my question I got to with you here is, when you were younger, and I know we're shifting gears a bit. Were you doing a lot of the stuff in the Balkans when you were doing your war your war reporting? Were you in Ireland doing like IRA stuff? What and when you stuff you're doing? What was your I want to know what was your most sphincter clenching moment as a war reporter? Yeah, <laughs> give what, and if you got a several, give me several because I I know uh. I, I know I want to hear about that because I, I, you know, I worked in Iraq and had some reporters around us every once in a while. And and I know sometimes they were they were right in the mix, too. So, yeah, I, I wanted to be asking you that since we got you on the show. I want to know what your what were you at Stinker yeah, 10? Right. You went to put a lump of coal up your butt and it would have become out of diamond. What was it? <laughs> OK, well, several answers. First of all, I, I, I never reported from Northern Ireland uh, during the during the Troubles. I just never wanted to go. Sure. It was a really, it was, a, I mean, okay, the Balkans were a really ugly, dirty war, but Northern Ireland was close to home. So I, mean, I, I did report for the Balkans. I was in Kosovo and various other places. But um, that's something that I'm sure you'll relate to. I'm sure you'll understand what I'm saying, because most people don't, but you guys will. Tell me if this, if this, if this hits home, right? Sure. When you are shot at, and you don't get killed is when you feel most alive. There is no greater feeling of being alive ever. Maybe when your first child is born or, or you know, where, where, that, that, that's that. But when you're shot at and when you think you're going to die and you don't, 
is when you feel most alive. And at that moment, your mortgage, uh, the argument with the wife, uh, the breaking up with the girlfriend, uh, you know, failure to get the, the degree yeah. you wanted, every other thing in life, smashing up your car before you left home. It, it's all completely irrelevant because that is the most pure experience of living you can ever get. I, I agree. And it's, <laughs> and it's something that, that you can only understand. Only people who've been in that situation will understand that. Because I, I say this quite a lot when people ask me, you know, so I was doing a podcast recently and the guy asked me, he was an English guy, uh, he's a football commentator, and he said, because he was interested in the parallels with football, and he said, what's it like being at war? And I said, it's when you feel most alive. And he couldn't understand what I meant. Um, and then I suppose, we're, and again, I'd be really interested in your take on this. So when I first thought I was going to you know, get killed <laughs> in war reporting, I was in Burma. And I went there and I embedded with the Karen, oh. if that means. And so the Karen were one of the tribes who fought with the Allies, with the British and the Americans against the Japanese in the Second World War. And then at that stage, they were fighting against the Burmese military junta. You know, it was a civil war. And I spent a year living with them. And, and when I say living with them, I was in the jungle, but I was living with them as a... So they were, you know, we, we, were, we were... There were times when we were like eight weeks behind, behind the lines, just with, you know, a hundred of their fighters and, and, and uh, yeah, and, and camping out in the jungle. And anyway, so it says one morning and, and the commander came to me, said, we've got to go down the hill, cross the river into the village. The Burmese soldiers are in the village. There's a thousand of them and a hundred of us. We're all dead, probably. And I can remember going down that hill and it's, I, I, it's a really strange thing to say, but and I was 21, so probably that explains it. I can remember thinking, well, if, 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 if this is it, if we're all going to get, shot you know, shot to pieces in this water, then I'm going to keep the camera running because at least that way there'll be a record and I've got a reason to be here. And maybe it was the discipline because, it's, it's, again, it's a really interesting thing when I talk to soldiers. Being a cameraman, it's, 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 there are so many similarities to being a soldier. You've got to keep... You've got to keep counting the number of minutes you've got left on your, okay, on your like table. Man, number like your magazines, <laughs> like your rounding your magazines, yeah, yeah. right? You've got to keep you've got to keep a check on the battery power. You've got to keep your lens clean. It's all the same kinds of discipline. And I think probably that first time, it was the adherence to the discipline of being the cameraman that got me through the fear of being about to you're die doing your job. You just you, you think about your, your job. job. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Does that relate? That is actually the, the first about the bullets, it's even before then. I call it, I, and I, I call it, told good people, um, it wasn't even the bullets that said, you're, you're, it's your time to go. It's time to, to go and the adrenaline kicks in. And if you're able to take a deep breath, and I say, just accept the situation you're in. Fix it, you're here. What am I going to do about it? And the world doesn't close. It actually, I, I call it like a horse with, the race horses with the blinders on, you take the blinders off. And now you can see everything. Yeah. And everything is so big. Yeah. That's why we have a problem when we come back because everything's so vivid and you can only get that vividness when you're in combat. You can only get it there. That's the only thing. And yeah. if you're able to do, right. if you're able to handle the situation and and my thing is when I say handle, it's not that you're going in, oh, I'm gonna kick everybody's ass. It's just you do your job. There wasn't anger, yeah. there wasn't happiness, there was nothing. It was and you're not a robot either. It's time to do your job. Let's go. And you start moving out. Yeah. We start. You start moving into position, and then the bullets start snapping by you. They, they don't. Except you think they whiz. No, they crack because they're breaking the sound barrier when they go by your head. It's not. It's 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 a. I smile. I just like God. That's awesome because I'm enjoying the moment. You're enjoying. Yeah. It. Like ah, and I can shoot back. So I. 
<laughs> like, all right. But it, and, it's, and it's not a bravado. It's like, all right, you want to shoot at me? All right, all right. You want to play games? Let's go play games. And it's not an anger thing because they can hit me too. It's just a, it, you, you've trained for the moment or you've been because you've been in the moments before because sometimes I, by that time, even in, by the time in Gazi, I've been doing this stuff for 10 years. So I've been, I, all yeah. the team was very senior at the time too. And, but it, you're exactly right. The, the vividness. That's why I, you know, I, I do really, you know, talk about the movie a little bit. 13 Hours is with Michael, Michael Bay. I, he got the right because every war movie that you really see is always dirty and grimy. And, you know, the colors are a little dull. If you watch 13, we tell, we said, we, we even told him, like, it's not like that. The colors are the most vivid you'll ever see in your life. Yeah. The, the, the sounds yeah. are most, the most and, vivid sounds you'll ever hear in your life. And time slows well, down. It's, it's just, because you're not paying attention. It's like summer. Yeah. So that's, that's, so that's kind of what happened. The first, the first time I thought, you know, I was going to, you know, be shot to pieces <laughs> or whatever. I had exactly that experience. Everything was so clear and so bizarrely calm and did the job and actually they just moved on so we got through and there was a bit of a far fight we got through it okay and then i mean there've been lots of yeah there've been lots of absolute i mean i, I look back on the kind of stuff that i used to do and i think <laughs> you were absolutely insane yeah, so but the, but i used to think is you can think about it and enjoy it you're like oh my gosh that's so amazing I, that's how i look at it. like man how how lucky am i to have experienced all this stuff yeah, and, and still be and still be here. Yeah, still be here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I've been on location lots of times with guys like yourself. Yeah, and they're either security or they're now former military guys who've, who've become cameramen because the disciplines are so similar. They're generally very good yeah. at it. And you know, so often they've kind of looked at us when we're doing our work and said, "You guys are the real crazy ones because we're here. We're <laughs> taking cover and we've got a gun. You're here." You're not taking yeah. cover, and you're sticking a camera in there. You're sticking a camera, exactly. I can. So I used to come. At least I can shoot back. I mean, uh, but, you know, the, the, that type it allows you to to really enjoy them. It does. It allows you to enjoy the moment. We had one cameraman on it, and I I joke a lot, even during situations like that. I joke, and I was telling him, "Hey, this is my good side. You know, make sure you get a picture of my good side." You know, and, and, but, but yeah. that's that's when you're able to handle the situation. And again, maybe I maybe the next time, if it ever, God forbid, it happens again. I hope not because I'm retired. But if it does, maybe I won't be able to handle the situation again. I, but during those times I was, you really are able to enjoy that moment because those colors, those favors, the sounds, the tracers, the, the and you're just able to process it all because you calm yourself down. Also, I tell guys. You know, you have those mortgages, you have the wife. You, have, you know, I always say one thing. The only thing you may, if there's a lull, you may think about is, and this is what I thought. I had a lull, we had, you know, because we had a lull at one, at one point after about six hours. I thought about my family and I said, did I tell my wife I loved her before I last talked? And I remembered, I said, yeah, I did. And then I wasn't worried. About it. I said, so if you have a family, some of your loved ones, I would recommend that because they may pop in your head briefly. And the thought that I had was, what was the last conversation? Did I tell him I loved him? Okay, good. And it wasn't, oh my gosh, the last time. It's, okay, did I do it? It was like, check the box. Did I do it? All right, I got it. Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. continue to fight. And so um, that was the only thing that I say would be, that would that would pop with the people may not think about is that that um that, that it did briefly pop in my head. My family did, but it wasn't, oh my gosh, I'm going to die in this, this godforsaken land. It was, I, did I do what I needed mm -hmm. to do to make sure there was good, good, yeah. a good, good ending if there is an ending? And I did, and, and I was able to go back and enjoy the moment again. 
And and so you're you're spot on. You are spot on. It's just vivid. Everything but, becomes so vivid. It, it it as long as you're able to take that breath and, and come like here. Yeah. But another question, right? Do you must feel like this, surely? So there's a club in London called the Frontline Club. Okay, it's the club for people who work on the front line. All right. When I was a news cameraman, I was I, I filed my 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 news stories for the Frontline News Agency. So it, it was a news agency. Now it's a club. So I go there occasionally, and I still meet people who are still doing it. Right? They're, they're my age, and they've never stopped. Okay, they've yeah. never got off that addictive roller coaster. And they all and I and I say, where have you been? And they say, ah, oh, well, it's just out in Helmand, or you know, it's just it's out in Basra. And I'm like, shit, really? And they're like, don't you miss it? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you must think, could I go back and do it? Do I still have it? Do I still have the? Don't you think? I, that? I, I you know what? I, I, I still teach firearms, and I still stay in pretty good shape. So I. Uh, and people can hit me up and dog me out for, well, listen to this. Do I still think I could do the job? Yeah, I know I could. I, I can still go run five miles easy. And I'm not I'm not a five and a half minute, five mile runner anymore, but I can still, at least still do the airborne shuffle and do it in eight. You get it done, eight minute mile. But, but also, you know, I, I, I'm able to push that aside. You do you, every day and I tell guys, you're going to have to push that aside. You have to. What are your, what, what is your job now? Are you going to close that chapter? And I missed so much time. I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. I was in Iraq and Afghanistan most of my 15 and my 12-year-old's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and now yeah, I have a five-year-old yeah. that I'm able to experience what I missed. So I, I, I'm able to, and I have to, you, you have to you still remember those chapters, but you have to close that book and start writing another one. And that's what keeps me, keeps me home. Yeah. Um, and that's why I saw, yeah. I said, will I ever go? No, only if, if now, if, if the government came and said, hey, we need you, man. You know, like the movies, hey, we need you. Okay, I'm going. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it sounds like a, it sounds like a uh, movie exactly. right here. That's not going to happen. So I, I, I ha it's just like. Is that your cell phone? What? I, it's like, do we need you? We need you. We need you, Tunnel on the back. No, it's not going to happen. But I, by, by me being able to set a standard, just like the military, say, this is my standard if I'm going to go back. This has to happen. I'm able to not let it eat me up. Where where guys let them eat you, yeah. eat them. That's that's when they. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so you have yeah. to. Yeah, you, and yeah, that's why I tell you, you have to set a different goal. What's your different different state right now? This is the goal. Close that chapter. And also, I don't have any feel like I have anything to prove to anybody. The bravado. I don't. Oh man, I go. I go go get my next kill on. No, I, I'm good. I'm good. I, if I need to, sure. Yeah. But, yeah. So, but you're. Yeah. I mean, you're spot on. It does. It's always going to be there. And the guys that can't close that chapter and and start a new one or find a way to say, you know what, I've done enough and, and be okay with it. It either eats them up and they go down that slope that they eventually ends badly, or they keep deploying till they're 90 and they they just become that's just what they do. And they have to sacrifice exactly. everything else in life. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah that that that's absolutely right. Um and then just on your other question, um yeah uh, dodgy moment. Yeah, um, you told one. That was pretty dodgy, right, Burma? With the fighting the Burma. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> the, the, dodgy the, the, right there. Oh my goodness! This is one of the ones which kind of sticks in my mind, and this is one of the ones I look back on and say, "No, no, you, 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 you there was something not right in your head at that time." So, 
One of the countries I reported from an awful lot was the Sudan. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been in the Sudan. Uh, I, I love the Sudan, uh, North and South. Now it's two countries, of course. And, uh, you know, I, I, they're great people and, and, you know, longest running civil war in Africa. So much death and destruction. And, I, and when I was reporting, to be honest with you, I was less a war reporter. I was more reporting on what war does to the innocent, because wars, as you know, are increasingly these days fought against women and yeah, children yeah, and people, yeah. people, people who shouldn't be in the front line. And um, I got I got known very I, I became very well known to the um, I guess the the commanders of the of the of the of the, of the, 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 the military in the south. And I said to the guy because in Burma we did we did a chemical we did a biological weapons investigation and got the samples and took them back to the UK and they're analysed by Port and Down, our chemical and biological weapons establishment. That's another story. But anyway, so in Sudan, I said to the guys that I said, look, if you ever have allegations of the use of chemical or biological weapons, call me. I'll come out with a team. And I got a call a year later. Literally, I got a phone call. They said, yeah. And what happened was a, a United Nations convoy had been going through a village in South Sudan, and there'd been gas dropped, and, and you know, there were casualties, and, right. and no, one, no one knew what it was and all the rest of it. So I went out. I flew out with two former U.S. Marines. So the deal was that they – we were the kind of de facto chemical weapon sampling team, and I, and I had the same deal with Porton Down. The chemical and biological defense establishment here in the uk um that they would analyze the samples um and but because i don't know if you know much about uh, chemical and biological weapons but you have to have a chain of custody you have to absolutely document every stage of the sample taking so it'll stand up in a court of law which is eventually where you're going to of course if chemical or biological weapons have been used and as part of the chain of custody you really want to video the whole thing the whole sample taking so that video is your proof your chain of custody and so i was filming it anyway cut a long story short we uh flew into kenya then flew into uganda then got in some four by fours drove across the border into sudan got to the place found the craters full of this red liquid suited up um <clears throat> went in to take the sample that I was filming. And this is the why the story gets crazy. <laughs> it's very hot in Sudan. And I was wearing a full NBC suit, oh, trying, to, trying to use a, cam a, a camera. You can see where this is going. And within about five minutes, I realized my eyepieces had steamed up. I couldn't use the camera because of the gloves on my hands. Yeah? <laughs> and I thought, I only, there's only two choices here. One, I don't film anything. And then we got no chain of custody. Or... I take the kit off. So I took the kit off and filmed the whole operation with no gloves and no mask. Oh, man. Which, which was insane. Now, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's insane. And, and it's just like we talked about before, if this makes any sense at all. At the moment, there was no – it wasn't like this is a tough decision. It's like, well, it's obviously what I have to do. I take the mask and gloves off. Yeah. And I did. And it felt completely calm, did the whole thing. Um, and it's a great, it's actually a great story. Just bear with me because it's, it's, no, no, it's crazy. No, so, so we get the samples, we bag them up, we parcel them up, we document them. It's all filmed. We get back in the Jeeps, back across the border into Uganda. We get to the Ugandan airport, and the two US Marine guys, former US Marine guys, say to me, You go out with the samples, we'll follow with all the film and all the kit because you know we're a bit worried that we'll have been noticed 
So I fly to, to Kenya and we're en route back to the UK. And then they fly in 24 hours later. They have been stripped bare at Uganda Airport, right? They've been searched <laughs> so extensively, you know? And they're like, they knew you just got through in time. So I'm there with a hold all full of vials of this red liquid, okay? Lumps of shrapnel, soil samples, vegetation samples. And I've somehow got to get on a plane in, in, in Nairobi and fly back to the UK, right? And and I was like, I had a flight book, but it was two or three days' time. And by now we know they're on to us. Do you understand? Yeah. We know people in authorities in Uganda and, and you know, that probably in Kenya too, now know that this team has been in with no clearance. You know, we just were winging it. So I, so I go on to be, I, I got the only ticket available that day with BA to fly to London, which was first class. And it cost me five and a half grand. I thought, no, I've got, I've got to have it. So, so we go to the airport and I am crapping myself. I'm imagining being in an African jail for the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, this is where the story gets ridiculous, crazy. One of the guys says to me, do you pray? And I said, whatever guy, God you pray to, I'll have any God you've got at the moment. If he can get me through that airport, get me home safely. I'll pray to anyone on this on this earth or in this universe. He says, great. You I, see- I'm thinking of, uh, and I know Chris knows this, I'm thinking of the scene in Talladega Nights with uh, Will Ferrell where he's on fire, where he thinks he's on fire. And he's like, hey, he goes, help me God. He's like, help me Jesus. Help, help me help Jewish me, God. Help, help me, me Allah. Help me God yeah <laughs> it's exactly like that and the guy says right you sit in the jeep with me and we're going to pray so we sit there and we pray and then we go to the airport right and the other guy's got all the luggage and i go there i said right where's the hold with all the samples and this is where it, it you know this is how how great these guys were he says it's all right i'll put it through already he put my bag of, of samples through the scanners got it through security for me oh nice. you get my drift oh, so when i got there so when I got there, I could travel knowing that my 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 bag of stuff that I didn't want to get found wow. by the authorities had already gone through. So they'd set it up between them, yeah? The getting me to pray in the Jeep was so he could go and put myself Put your through. sample now. That was... I know. Wow. What the, hey, you better have some faith. It increases your luck a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> even if it's, yeah. even I mean, if it's the God Tom Cruise prays to, have some faith in something. <laughs> oh, you, dude, that's that's awesome. That's, that's just just amazing stuff. I, you know, with that kind of you just and, and first of all, I'm, I'm I'm glad you don't have a, a second a third arm growing out of your forehead for being exposed. Actually, <laughs> yeah, was, tell me about it because I want some closure on this. What was the red stuff? Did they ever tell you what it was? What, did they ever tell you what kind of? Yeah, they did. I, I I can't. It's, you can't say I can't okay. It's, it's classified. No, I, I, no, no, it's not. It's, 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 we 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 put the story out there, and, and actually we put the story out. Uh, you know, we broadcast the story, and you know, and, and Port and Down released their evidence. We broadcast the story. I just can't remember the name of it. It wasn't a common one. It wasn't like it wasn't mustard. It could have been a a, a, a derogation, uh, um, degradation product gotcha. from mustard. I can't remember. Gotcha. But gotcha. <laughs> it was fascinating. Um, hey, I, I want to make sure that that we hit on the book, of course, because, you know, as we're talking about your SAS history and people could just look up your name on Amazon or even go to your website. You have so many books on the SAS on World War Two, um, but definitely let the audience know a little bit about Churchill's Hellraisers, the secret mission to storm a forbidden Nazi fortress and, you know, Churchill putting this group together. The audience might want to know because the book is out right yeah. now. 
just came out what a week or two ago yeah, so yeah, yeah. i think yeah. a lot of people are going to be excited to pick it up yeah yeah well look um you know it's um it's a great story and um you know it, it does delve into all those things that we've been talking about it delves into the founding of the sas and and, and you know as i said to um to some of the media here recently I think one of the things we forget, well, the, the early stages of the resistance to, to, to the Nazis in World War II, I think have kind of like been forgotten in, in, you know, in the fight back. And one of the really, really incredible things about, uh, told in this book and some of the other stories I've written about the, the birth of special forces, we came so close to throwing in the towel. Hitler did not want to fight England. So after he'd won Western Europe, he wanted to turn immediately to fight the Russians on the Eastern Front. That was his main aim. What he really wanted was he wanted Levenstrom, living space in Eastern Europe. He wanted to take all that territory, uh, get rid of communism, and, and, and basically take, take the land for, for German and, and Germanized peoples. He didn't want to fight England at all. He would eventually have turned back to the UK and then to America, because America was his eventual aim in terms of, you know, Nazi world takeover, the Fourth Reich, Third Reich, Fourth Reich. But he didn't want to fight England at that time. He didn't want to fight Britain at that time. And it would have been so easy to have cut a deal. He wanted to cut a deal. OK. And it was because of Churchill that we didn't cut a deal. And when you look at what the man did, you know, in 3940, it, it's just... I don't know how he did it. I honestly do not know how he stood firm because he had nothing. We'd had, you know, Dunkirk. So we'd had defeat in Europe. We'd had Dunkirk. We'd got, we'd left behind most of our weaponry, tanks, field guns, rifles on the beaches of France, which the Germans seized and then, you know, took over, you know, uh, adapted for their own use. We'd got several you know, tens of thousands of our men back, but we'd lost a huge proportion of our of our professional arms forces. We had nothing with which to fight. And not only that, can you imagine how our morale was at rock bottom? You know, the Maginot Line in France, which we had defended along with the French and other Allied troops, was supposedly impregnable. And within weeks, the whole of yeah. France had fallen, basically. And we'd been thrust back into the sea. And, you know... There was a very, very significant proportion of the British uh, hierarchy, political and military, political mainly, who wanted to cut a peace deal. They did not want to fight. And what Churchill realised and why he was such a genius and such a man that we have to admire and, and the only man for that moment, what he realised was if Britain was going to stand and fight alone, largely alone to start with, we had to show to the people that we could do so. You had to hit back. You had to show you had the will to fight. And attack is always the best form of defence. And that is why he formed special forces. That's the whole reason. He didn't think special forces are going to win us the war because they weren't. OK, it was conventional military operations that won the war largely. He didn't think they were essential to defeating Hitler. He knew they were essential to showing a defeated nation they had the ability and the will and the balls to hit back. Can you, can you imagine the genius of that? 
Can you just conceive of the genius of that at that moment when all the military commanders in Britain wanted to do was to roof the nation over, concentrate on our defences, radar, fighter aircraft and, and, and beach defences? Churchill said, no, what we're going to do is we're going to find, find a completely new form of soldiering that no one ever has done before. It's going to be based upon the commandos uh, 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 of South Africa during the Boer War. They're going to be these irregular bands of raiders. They're going to hit back at Nazi Germany within the month. This was in June 1940, as Dunkirk happened. And, and we don't have the resource, and we've got no trained men. We've got no uh, boats or aircraft with which to do these operations. But within the month, we're going to get the first raiding party back across the sea to hit the Germans where they least expect it. And that's exactly what they did. So Dunkirk finished 6th, 7th of June. Within the month of June, they got the first raiding force back across the channel. It was called, codenamed Operation Collar, 90 men. And they went across the channel in RAF crash boats. So those are the boats you put to sea to rescue downed yeah, airmen. They're basically yeah. rubber dinghies, right? Yeah. So they went across the sea in RAF crash boats at night, 90 guys. They attacked a German outpost. They caused some casualties. They took some prisoners and they got every man back home again. It was totally insignificant in terms of the, the greater fortunes of the war. Why did it matter? Because the next day it was headlines in all the British and the American press. And the American press hailed this new brand of British bulldog who has the will to strike back. That's what lay behind <laughs> his determination to find special forces. That's bloody genius. It's just That's awesome. Man. And the passion which Damien speaks is why he's so great at what he does. And, and you guys got to pick up this book right on the cover. You have a quote from Bear Grylls on here. So, you know, the book is getting high praise. Um, and I think this audience, if you're a military history buff, if you love learning about the history of special operations, you're going to want to check it out. So it's Churchill's Hellraisers, The Secret Mission to Storm, A Forbidden Nazi Fortress, out now on Kensington Publishing. Anything else uh, you want to hit on? I mean, we've, we've had some great stories this show, so I really appreciate you coming on, Damien. Well, I, I just think it's, it's I, I don't know, I'd be really interested. Have, have you guys, you know, the fact that's why special forces were founded. It, don't you find that fascinating? It, it was, and, it and, was it was a morale operation. It, it, it's yeah. all, and even, but even more now, um, since it was, and it was started, then become that little, that little anvil that you can hit and surgically do stuff and take over, take over areas. And it's not going to be, it's not going to win a war, conventional wars. We are blessed that he did that because there's not going to be any more conventional wars because we'll win them all. But now the SF, yeah. which is in within special operations, we should say now, not just when we say SF. Guys that have been in the service, they think of long tab or special forces. It's not. It's, it's that special yeah, operations. Special Having all that now, now we've got still got that anvil to go in and go in the caves in Afghanistan and, and do the uncommissioned warfare that you need to do um, to win wars or to destabilize. If that's and that's why I told you, wars are not one really on the battlefield all the time. They're one when you're destabilizing an infrastructure. Well, that's special forces. That's special operations. And, and so for him to do that. And then I also think the Doolittle raid was partly what they looked at what Churchill did. I think after Pearl Harbor, Churchill's thing that he did there was where our commanders were always doing what the Brits do. Always. Which is fine when it's good stuff. It's like what they what they decided to go in. Hey, we're not going to make a big difference. They just hit Pearl Harbor. So let's go hit the Japs where they, excuse my language there, if that's politically incorrect. But that's World War II. I'm not around anyway. 
going and hitting hitting them again. But that was from I, I honestly believe nobody. Somebody said, "Oh, how do you know, Tom?" I just from looking at history. I think to our commanders looking at Churchill and saying that he took the initiative to get the morale back. Was it significant? Yeah, no, yeah, not in the terms of, of life's loss or, or victory, but no, Doolittle Raid was crucial though. But it's a state crucial to the American psyche. The morale again. Yeah. But that's where SF and yeah. special ops come into because I we won't and, and if whatever happens that we don't, I, I don't foresee it, but we have the best spot special operations in, in the world. And when you couple that when we do missions with SAS those two groups going together, whether it's Rangers and SAS, Delta and SAS, whether it's, and then you got SPS and you got the SEALs. So there's nobody's ever going to beat us ever on the, on the special operations side. So we, we will always have the advantage in morale. We always have that initiative, but that started with Churchill. And you're going to think that now. It started with him up to this point. No, it, it did. And, and just, just, just one kind of final point, which I, I always find, you know, really, really fascinating. When you, when you have that, when you understand that it's it, it's partly about morale. The other thing about it is just the fear of the black-clad guys <laughs> coming down the chimney. Just the fear of that is enough of, enough of a disincentive to a lot of the bad guys to stop them being bad. So in the Second World War, the Germans nicknamed the um, the, 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 the the parachute forces that we raised because they wore the red beret. They nick I can't I can't pronounce the German properly. They nicknamed the German the German word for the Red Devils, and just the idea that the Red Devils might parachute behind your lines and come and kick your ass from behind, that, that struck the fear of God into them. That's the power that these forces, which Churchill initiated, raise. And that's how it still is today, even more so. Even uh, you know, the Taliban with the Rangers coming in at night or the Rays going at night, they never slept because all the Rays are at night. That's part of the morale, but it yeah. also takes a physical toll on your mind and body because you're not sleeping. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it, and that's unconventional warfare. That's the everybody think it's the, the they think it's the direct action. We're going to go hit him. That's how we know it's it's all up here first. Getting that getting that yeah. advantage up top first and keeping that advantage, keep them on their toe, keeping them on their heels. The bad guys or the enemy on their heels is what wins wars. There's what wins battles. Yeah. Um, and again, it's it, I, I, people just listen and read about Churchill. They can see where that all came from. And and our, I know our commanders, believe me, I, I guarantee our commanders study Churchill and all their classes. I know I had to, of course, great commanders. Uh, and um, and it all started with with him and his 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 development of the special air services, which led to our groups down the road. And again, specifically, my yeah. lineage is the Rangers. Who, that's who made the Ranger Battalion. That's who made 75th Ranger Regiment was SAS. That's who did it. And it's it's. And I, I'm admiring. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that because I've immense respect for SAS, and those guys can carry a rucks just like Rangers guys. We get in ruck marches and competitions together. Those guys can carry their rucksacks just, just as well as Rangers, and that's respect right there because that's, that's yeah. an equalizer. Now, bro, I, 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 yeah. I am, I, I completely agree with you on all those those points, and that's from my studying when I was stupid enough to lead the enlisted ranks and become an officer. I don't know why I did. I should have stayed enlisted. That's we had to learn all that. And that's we had to learn. We had to learn the church. We had to learn about Churchill and read about him. And his, he was a tremendous, tremendous leader. People may hate him. I don't care. I, as far as a, a, a tactician and just somebody that was ahead of the game, especially at that time within the, in the, in the war, in the war community, I should say, he was about, he yeah. was, he was, a, he was in front of everybody. He was led the way. He was the only man. He was the only man, and, and, and he had the 
you know, the more you study his 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 war record, the more you realise that he he stood firm in a way that yeah. it's just so hard to get your head around. If you put yourself in his shoes and think, could I have done that? You know, it's just it's it deserves so much admiration. He stood firm against the advice of just about everybody. He had one or two people on his side, but everybody else was like, no, let's cut a deal with Hitler, or at the very least, let's just defend this island. We're never never going to be able to fight back. It's now just an end game. And he 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 fought against all that and he triumphed. And that's why we speak English in America right now. And we do and because of and that's why we have the freedoms that we have. It it started right there. It yeah. really did. Now I, I try. Yeah. I yeah. man, it, it was a great conversation, Damien. I I I loved every minute of it. And it's good to finally meet you. I've heard your name around the around the around the watering holes, <laughs> but I've never ever met you. And I always, but I always loved. And I want to finish with this on my end. Still, when I work with the SAS and SBS guys, I still admire the way you guys cuss. It's so proper. Somebody would tell me to fuck off, and I would say thank you. <laughs> So, yeah, thanks, man. I still have never learned the proper way to tell someone to F off and they think that you're giving them a compliment. I admire that. That's, that, is, that was the biggest respect I ever had for. No, they're, they're tremendous. And again, I, I learned a lot from my GRS stuff. I was trained by an SBS guy for doing the GRS work mm. they were doing at the agency. They would come over and cross train us. And I had immense respect for those guys. They're immensely talented and they're gentlemen. They're, they are complete um, yeah. respect. So much respect to your to, to those guys down there. And I appreciate your writing about them. That's where our lineage comes from. Awesome. Awesome stuff, bro. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Great having Damian Lewis on. Um, it's funny because every, every now and again, you get like the military uh, military historians, and they're very dry and matter-of-fact. <laughs> and he is not. He's a guy who you could tell has a lot of passion, and I think that comes from the on-the-ground war reporting, as you guys uh, are. I, I think it just covers his personality, too. He's, he's high-end, high high-octane. and But uh, is it the chicken and the egg theory? Did he become that way when he became an on-the-ground war reporter, or was he that way? So that's why he went into the on-the-ground war reporting. Either way, though, entertaining, a lot of information. And I, I, I love people that are passionate about what they get into because they just are so much better at it. I, you know, I, that's that's you see somebody whether it's being in the band or playing football or shooting guns or reading books or writing books when they're passionate about it they're so much better at it and they're able to portray that to other people as well they're able to 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 get people interested in in there because they they make it exciting and um and he's a tremendous writer and as you can tell by the la- by the episode yeah. just a just a cool dude and he's just a lime, he's a he's a limey yeah. bastard, that cool cool mofo. He's just a good dude. And <laughs> and and when you have a quote from yeah. Bear Grylls on the front of your book, I mean that's high praise. It says exhaustively researched, powerfully written, and utterly gripping. So yeah, check it out, guys. Um, I should throw out there this is Monday that this is going up. So I hope yeah. everybody's enjoying their Labor Day. Um, but on on <clears> the <throat> um Sadder note, of course, this is also the anniversary of really two different 9 yeah. The anniversary of uh, 9-11-2001, the anniversary of something you yeah. know better yeah. than anybody, uh, the attack on Benghazi and the consulate in Libya. Um, if we reflect on the first thing first, uh, first attack first, 19 years later, uh, I'd love to hear where you sure. are. I mean, I, I personally was at Manhasset High School. I'm at my parents right now in Manhasset, so really just a few minutes away from here. Um, Manhasset High School set up like a tower 
So I was at the very top of the tower. I mean, I'm on Long Island, so you can't typically see Manhattan from here. But I was at the very top classroom uh, and someone walked in the room and said the uh, Twin Tower, you know, one of the Twin Towers has been attacked. And then we heard about the second and you could see the smoke coming from the towers. You couldn't see the towers themselves, but you saw the smoke. Um, a very weird day because the town I was in was impacted more than uh, just about any other town. I think there was, you know, one in New Jersey impacted around the same amount. But this is the area where a lot of people in where I'm sitting from right now worked on Wall Street, worked in that building um, and commuted from here. They lived in the suburbs and they commuted 40 minutes on the train every day. And this is where they came back. And uh, I lost a great family friend, Chris Quackenbush. And, you know, because of the fact that I was 15 or something at the time, I thought of Chris Quackenbush as being this older man. But then I look back and he was like early 40s, you know, way too young, way too. Yeah, of course, man. But it's like way too young to pass away. But, but when you're 14, everyone's old. Um, you know, super successful guy and brought out less fortunate kids to Met Games and did all types of great philanthropic work. You know, I, I know people think of someone like that, these hedge fund guys and Wall Street. Oh, they're all about money. You know, not true for a lot of them. A lot of them use that money for good. He was one of those people. Um, I mean, of course, we lost countless people. That's, that's the one I have a personal connection with. And when I got to go to the um, to the 9-11 Memorial exhibit, I, I got to hear his wife, Tracy, talk about Chris there. You can just punch in his name and she talks about what a, what a great man he was. Uh, so that's what I remember in 9-11. And I mean, this has nothing to do with 9-11 itself, but it's just crazy for me. I was in the classroom with my friends, TJ, Steve, Brian, uh, and who, it was a bunch of people. And of course, my friend George. And I still see those guys to this day. Like, all of us went to Costa Rica four years ago, you know, and it was like we experienced the most memorable day that anyone, you know, that Americans will remember forever. And it's just so crazy that I, I still keep in touch with those guys and that we it was, you know, a powerful, powerful moment. Um, the, the difference between right now and then is that, you know, New York rebounded very quickly. And I, I don't see that happening right now. But anyway, where, where were you? I, I have was no actually, idea. Where you uh, I just, yes, that I don't know. God works in mysterious ways, brother. I had just left Ranger Battalion to become an officer. I just started my green to gold program. Um, so when 9-11-2012 happened, I mean 9-11-2001 happened. I had just left Ranger Battalion and was starting my um and um, yeah, I, I remember 2012 a lot more vividly. Smells and all that. I I can remember all that. Of course, yeah. but that I do remember where I was walking. I was actually because Green to Gold is when you go into the reserves from active duty and you attend college. You attend an ROTC program to get your commission. And I only had to do a year of it because I already had my degree, so I only had to do the military science portion. But I do remember. But I remember the as I remember walking to because walking to class because I was had to go I used to, have to take classes you had to go and I was getting my going working on a second master's is what I was doing while I was going to ROTC and um and but you can't tell by the way I talk guys I you can't tell I have any education yeah you know, it's true that. it's true but um no I, a guy walked by me and yeah you know, at that time I was pretty froggy still I was still really I would consider myself still a young ranger. And, and when it happened, it wasn't a sense of, oh my gosh, or shock. It was, and, and it's, it, you, you don't become, you, you don't become desensitized. It's just, okay. And he did a guy tell me, said, Hey, the twin towers are just, they were just hit. And I said, what happened? He goes, did you know, it was, did you know it was terrorism right away? Cause I could actually say when we heard it in our classroom 
and we heard someone flew into the Twin Towers. Maybe it was our young minds. I don't know what it was. The reaction was like, "What? how, how do you do that? What an idiot. And then people were like, was the pilot drunk? Because at least embedded in our minds prior to September 11, 2001, as a civilian young American, terrorism we, was not on your mind. Actually, I, I did because we were, you could sense a battalion. We were getting prepped for something when I was leaving. That's why it was hard to leave. I could mm. feel that something, because hey, you kept telling our team leaders, hey, we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere. We're getting ready to go. And, you know, I was pretty much a peacetime ranger. Well, what made, what made it, 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 though? Because it, I, it, you know, it, well, it's not from us. It's from our hires up. When we start getting our training cycles, they start to ramp up. So our training starts to ramp up. So we start doing more. No, but I'm just wondering. I mean, no one knew that we were going to get thrown into a war. And, and I know during the Clinton years, our eye was off the ball. But I think <clears> I, I always thought that the perception was we are now into the Bush years. It's going to be a different military. We're not going to scale back the military. Um, but what that, would make and that's not brother. That's going to be in a war because we're that's that's Pentagon. That's the that's military intelligence. That's the agency. So me being a private at the time. I'm just I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm just here and listening it out. But you could feel it. And my team leaders were saying, hey, something's going to kick off. And but me as being a young private, I'm like, yeah, whatever, whatever. I, I mean, I'm the same as you. I'm like, I'm not seeing anything. What did you think was what did you think was going to kick uh, off? That there was in the Middle East, something was happening in the middle. And you just got that thing. I would ask. I said, well, what's going on? I said nothing. But there's something, something kicking. It would just say something. I never got a good answer. But that's kind of how it is, especially at the at the in the in those units, is that you're never going to know everything. But you can tell by the way we train, we start to train differently and you start to train more and you start to be even start working more with other units. Like you're, you're doing joint training with with uh, with SOAR, with 160 Special Operations Aviation Regiment, or you're doing joint training with Crew or Delta, which we were doing more of. We just got done doing a joint tra- joint training readiness exercise. Uh, in in Fort Knox with the with the Air Force PJs, the Air Force Special Operations the pilots, and also TF Brown, which was uh, which is Night Stalkers. And like I said, brother, I'm the same as you. At that time, I'm like, yeah, whatever. And, and so I'm just kind of rolling my eyes. And that's why I decided to go to officers training because I'm like, because I'm still a peacetime range. Like this is never going to happen. We're never going to get anything. People people <laughs> might read into what you're saying though, because this is what I'm curious of. Like. I'm curious. You can give your answer. You're not insinuating there was like prior knowledge of an attack. I don't think prior knowledge of attack on the towers. I think prior knowledge of a very viable threat to the United States of America. That's what it was. Hmm. Um, But again, I've seen shady shit shit sit in 9-11-2012. I've seen some shady shit in in politicians and in D.C. So, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all to say, oh, it was a planned attack. It was a planned attack. I don't think that was the case. I just think there was a, there was becoming a more viable threat to the United States of America. Not that it was that specific target. Mm-hmm. If it was, I don't know. I have no clue. I'm not actually. I'm not at that pay grade. But our battalion commander, our regimental commander, everybody, JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command. Um, looking back on it now, by the way they were acting when I was actually at the unit, and from the way my team leaders out filters on down to me, which being I was just a brand new. Cab spec four. Well, no, I was I was been a team. I was I was actually moving into a team leader slot. So, um, but seeing how my hires were starting to tell me, hey, we're going to do something. We're, we're get ready. We're starting. We're starting to move. We're starting to ramp up for something. Um, just looking back, hindsight twenty twenty. Now looking back at it, now where at the time I was like, ah, bullshit. Nothing's going to happen. We're, we're, 
Do you, do you think maybe it was the transition between presidents, though? Because I mean, it was the transition right. I do. No, I think there was a there was a we were we've been tracking Bin Laden for a lot of years before that because of what. So I think it was a it was a focal Bin Laden there a terrorist terrorist plot to do something. Um, because Bin Laden had been the focus since 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 Clinton was in president. Match we had a chance to get you know we had yeah. We had a chance to get of course, it. Yeah, and I think know. there was actually still more. There was a viable threat that there's going to be an imminent attack somewhere. But I, they, I don't think they knew it was the Twin Towers. I, I can't say that, man. That's that's going way down a rabbit hole. I would never say that. For sure. Yeah. And I just wonder, if you know, uh, people might wonder why didn't they attack us under Clinton? Because people always do say Clinton had his eye off the ball. Quentin um, was, from what I know, and you could speak more to this than me, was basically incentivizing people not, not to go, to go in the eye. And that, that's, we could even tell by the by our training budgets how much ammo we were getting. You can always tell when there's a Democratic president or Republican president when you're in the when you're in. The, but yeah. I, I honestly just think target of opportunity. It was just an opportunity, and I don't think it, my looking back, and this is just my 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 little view on it the attack that they wanted to do during Clinton, those pilots were still just getting ready. They were still just learning how to fly. So I just, they, you know, I, I don't true. think it was, Hey, we're going to under push because it's going to make a statement. It was, they just weren't ready. They were just starting to get people in place to get their attack ready. And um, that's why I don't think it happened under, under Clinton. It wasn't that they thought, Oh, Clinton's going to come get us. Cause obviously he wasn't, he's not going to, it was, they just, the plan just had started to develop and they weren't at that stage to make it happen. And, you know, it, we, we still were as a country at that time, very, we, we thought we were impervious to attack on our own, on our own soil. And, but that's, again, and that's why you're talking about this and thinking back now, when I think back, there was the intel, there was intel coming in. Just, I could just get the feeling when I was at Battalion, there was intel coming in that something was happening. But I, again, me being at my pay grade, I'm just doing what I'm told. I, I'm not asking you don't yeah. go to a colonel as an E4 and go, "Hey, colonel, what's going on? What, what, what happened?" You, you're, yeah, but yeah. you could, you just, you can tell by the, you can just tell by the training cycles. You can tell by the ramping up of the training cycles and 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 just 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 by it, it change, it goes to a different, a different sort of not mindset, just a different way to train, and or the training becomes more focused on a specific avenue of what we need to accomplish because this might be a mission coming up, whether it's an airfield seizure or we need to go, uh, we actually go have to take over a building or we have to block for Delta. The, the, the missions, the training mission changes to a specific avenue where we may not have done that for a while. And we're like, well, why are we doing this now? And it's because we might do it for real in the future. So we still might need it. So it just changes up. And you, you, people are smart. I mean, a person is very smart. People together can be quite stupid. <laughs> but a person is smart yeah like, get it exactly <laughs> yeah yeah we really yeah. are on on, oh, on isn't it, isn't it? but a person yeah, sure. is smart so when you're able to step back out of it i agree, I agree. like but being a prize like well I'm, something's going on but my job is just to do what i'm told roger that three bags full let's go knock it out whatever we need to do um but again getting back that day somebody told me so it really didn't shock me uh, um and then i found out what happened and honestly my thinking was it was it was awful, of course. You know, it's terrible, um, especially when yeah. you see the people jumping out because they don't want to be burned alive. That, that's still hard to see, even when you go to the memorial. Yeah, my, yeah. my grandma, my grandma watched that because she yeah. was working in the city, and and I I genuinely think she had some post traumatic stress these from people it. Can, I really yeah, do. I actually I I was still getting good at disassociating myself from those feelings, so I just disassociate. 
But I think also, you know, like someone like my grandma and people in the city to not be someone who's in the position like you're, they're just regular civilians. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, to yeah. see it close yeah, up yeah. right there it, in plain and sight. I, and I, it's totally it, unprepared. It will mess your head up. Unless, and that's, that's, that again goes back to where, and I was just a youngster at the time. And it was, but they get through, they, they get to you where you can just. I was a young, I was a, I was a young, young. And, 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 relatively <laughs> yeah. speaking, but you were really, uh, but me being in my, in my thirties at the time, I had already, you know, I, I could, you just, you pull yourself out of that emotion because it, you, I, I was like, I, and I immediately went back to my Lieutenant Colonel who was a, at the ROTC program, the commander who was a former SF guy. And he actually worked with the night stalkers for a while. Colonel Worthman. I said, I want out of my contract. I want to go back to battalion. And I remember I, this is what I do remember. I remember he looked me up and he, I respected that man a bunch. He was awesome. Colonel Worthman, he looked at me and he goes, we need more officers than we do Rangers. You ain't going anywhere. And Roger that, sir. And I finished my RTC program and watched the war kick off going through ROTC. And it, that was hard because he goes, I, I did, I did, I mean, I, I did say, well, I'm just going to leave then. He goes, well, you're going to be the in the army and we're going to put you wherever we want you. And that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to go back to Rangeman Town. I don't want to go somewhere where the Army needs me. Army needs me. When he says that, that's not that's a derogatory statement from a commander when they say that. Because that means they're going to put you in an iceberg in Antarctica somewhere because the Army needs you to man a weather station up there. So, um, and I, I, I just nutted down and I, I did my, got my commission. And, and um, I just, I watched as, it was, it was hard because all the guys I just left, I would see them jumping in. I just remember the first jump into Afghanistan, um, and I watched them jump in Afghanistan. The first night jump was actually televised, and I remember I was me and you know I, I was married to Tanya at the time, and I watched it on TV, and I was like, because you're watching guys get their mustard stain, they're jumping in, they're jumping, seizing an airfield, and like, and you're just like son of a, and I really felt like I'd made a really bad decision. I, it was it was because so. Mine wasn't really the attack, which was awful. It was son of a bitch. I missed my time. I'm never, you know, you're thinking I'm never going to be in switch. I'm never going to see combat. I fucked up. I screwed up. Little did I know I was going to see a lot of it in the later years. But at that time, you're like, son of a bitch. I screwed up. I really wish I was there. Yeah, no one, no one would have known that we were going to be in the Middle East for 20 years. I mean, because I don't think anybody thought of uh, nation building. And I know that you're critical of it. And many of us are. We thought we were going to go in there, take out the terrorists and be out. And, and, you know, it's become more about rebuilding a nation. And, you know, I know you've been critical of it because the idea of like forming a Jeffersonian democracy in a place that doesn't want anything to do it. You you can't do it. We should learn that from Vietnam, bro. I, I, you got to learn from the past. You got to learn from history, and it, it doesn't happen. You don't change ideologies, and you don't need to. I, living in those countries and being able to spend time and actually live not on a base all the time, but live actually and be within the community, they don't have to be have a Jeffersonian democracy to be successful. And most of them just want to live, so they want to, you know, they just want to be, they just want to be. Um, and and you know, they're going to have the Taliban, and you're going to have. The, the hardcore Islamists over there, but they've lived they've lived with those and they have to solve their own problems with those things. You we can't go in and solve it for them. Yep. You go in there and I, I do agree if we get attacked like we did, or when Gaddafi did his attack on us when Reagan was president, yes, you go in there and you kick the living shit out of them, but then you say, Hey, don't do it anymore. We're going home. And now we just basically when we go in there and we do what we did in Libya 
when I was there on 9-11, 2012, or what we've been doing in Iraq and Afghanistan since, it's just continual war. And we just continually tear up the infrastructure. We just make it worse. And we do. Instead of going in, doing our battle, doing whatever we need to do, get the shit out of who attacked us, whether it takes a few months or not, but get the hell out and say, okay, it's your country now. Take it back. Here you go. We rid these bad people out of here. Now do what you need to do so it doesn't happen again. But we want, this is your country. And like Libya, when Gaddafi, you know, he became, you know, that's why dictators are dictators. They, they have to be. They really, I've seen that. I know they're awful, but it's worse not having somebody like Gaddafi in power than having militias running over all over the place, just killing everything. Um, but we have to accept that as an American people, that not all countries are going to live like we are. Um, and, and that's yeah. just, but we, we, I, I think we figured that out finally. It just took us 20, I said 20 some years to finally figure it out. So I never would be in a nation. Nation building is, is dumb. It's just stupid. And, and you know what? This, this skeptic in me, and I know you're skeptical of things just yep. like me with this. I don't even know if it's always so much about um, that. We didn't know what we were getting into. I mean, I, and <laughs> you know, I'll get criticized for this, but uh, there's so many people who make money off of war, you know, the defense contractors and no, all that, right. and, and they make a lot of money staying somewhere for 20 oh, years. Right. Ask, if you want to ask Dick Cheney and Halliburton, that who runs Halliburton with Dick Cheney? Yeah. yeah. Look at that KBR. Holy. Yeah. He did. Yeah. And that was definitely made a ton of money. No, you, hey, war mongering. That, that's it's a profession, and 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 being a, being a war a war a war business distributor. I don't know how you want to say it. It's it's the god honest truth, brother. Wars wars cost money, but they also make a lot of money. And and also to say that we didn't go in there for some natural resources is wrong as well. As much as you can yeah. just, and for you left and right, for you left people, oh, we went to Iraq to get oil. Possibly, yeah, it could have happened. But we also, for you left people, we also went into Libya to get oil as well. So you, it, don't don't yeah. be hypocritical. Just look at both sides. To get natural resources, it's to it's to do that and currency and so forth. You're right. There's so many different reasons. It's never that we're going into well, you know, funny. well, it's not. Yeah. I, I was a big, uh, you know, I, I always am transparent with my own ideologies and my own biases. I was a big Ron Paul supporter in 2008, and I was a big believer in that non-interventionist foreign policy. I still am on some level, but I actually will say a conversation I had with Jack Murphy changed my opinion on it somewhat because Ron Paul's whole thing was, why are we in Japan? Why are we in Germany? Why are we in all these other countries? And what Jack said to me, which makes sense, is he goes, dude, if we weren't in all those countries, you don't think China's going to have a base there? You know, we kind of have to have a presence. You, you have to. But it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a non-confrontational presence. Having a presence is fine. Having a yeah. base there. Also, you need those bases there if we do ever have to get into a conflict again. You, you can't just leave from the United States and transport people it's not possible and as far as being a commander it's not reasonable in a battle space you have to have other places to step off from forward operating bases but as agreeing with jack too you do have to have those bases there because if you don't somebody else is going to that is not friendly to us and that just gets them closer to us to where they're moving their battle space to surround the united states of america and by that time you've realized it you're like oh shit they got us surrounded you know it's it's, it's as simple as going in the wild west and 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 when the Native Americans, the Indians used to surround the, the settlers moving or, or anybody, they surround them to, to eliminate them. Well, same thing. If you don't have these spaces and you don't have bases in particular areas, 
uh, our enemies. And we, are, I wish we could all live in peace and harmony, guys. Believe me, I wish we could. I don't believe that's ever going to happen. But our enemies will surround us and we do the same thing. They're going to use, use tactics just like we do. So I agree with Jack as well. That's another reason to have bases. But that doesn't mean those bases have to be aggressive bases where we're going out and for sure and they're not yeah, in exactly. germany they're not exactly. in japan you know um so that we should actually transition to that oh, yeah. 9 11 2012 does it feel um like eight it, years it, later it starts it to feel? now um nah, it doesn't feel like eight years but i i really don't feel anything until till you know rice gets gets close to the day of and then it, it's weird i won't even be thinking yeah, we're recording yeah. this on September fourth. We're on September, so you know when when it gets as it gets closer, um, like right now, um, it, it starts to wear on me, and I don't even notice. It's just subtly. My wife can tell the difference. It's just I'll start to get a little bit, um, not angry, just detached. You know, I just I just I won't be there, uh, and and it it and then it's nine eleven. The day comes, um, I don't want to talk to nobody. I know we'll have our podcaster with Tom. We're going to do with with Tom. Tom That's Brock, right, yeah. but uh, and I'll do and I'll do well because it's a fellow ranger, so I'll be happy. And, and Tom's a great guy, and he's been his own things. But uh, yeah, I, I'll get off, and I, I just I just want leave me the hell alone, leave me alone. I just don't want to talk to anybody because not that I get angry. It's just um, I just remember and and remember, and I do. I remember the sights, I remember the smells, I remember uh, the pictures, the flashes of light. I remember my feelings. I I, I can remember what I was feeling at a even at a spot that night. Before I was about ready to climb one of the first buildings, I remember how I felt looking up at going up, going in my head for a second, Jesus. And I'm already tired of going, oh, I got to clear this thing with a Mark 46 and a rifle and all this ammo and then just doing it. And I remember the smell of the dirt. And I remember climbing and thinking, you're just trying to do cursory searches because it's two of us trying to, well, there's four of us. I threw Libyans with me. Four of us trying to clear four-story building going Okay, I look like I cleared it. God, I hope nobody shoots me in the back because we got to keep moving up, and and then getting to the top and feeling disappointment when you, I couldn't we couldn't see in. Going, she just did all that work for nothing. I mean, that's the kind of stuff as I'm telling you right now, I'm, I'm remembering. That's what I'm in my head, and I'm and, and you're just yeah. remembering the sights and sounds. And like we talked about with Damien, those sights and sounds they're just so amplified. And I remember just just I just remember just enjoying the amplification. I always enjoy the amplification. I just enjoyed. Everything being turned up on ten, it just is awesome. And and looking at the smoke and the fire, and just looking and going, God, and just thinking to myself, man, I am a one lucky son of a bitch. And just you know, like this is this is awesome. So you know, it was never nine eleven. I remember as 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 being a uh, being it was a job, but now I can think back on it and I can remember all the feelings that I had. And then it then it then it then it uh, then it kind of hits me. And um and then I look at my kids and I think of Roan. You know, because he he had a son that would be my son's age, a little bit, maybe a two years older. That uh, Kai is his name. And like, man, you know, it's just it's kind of like it's, it's not survivor's remorse. I don't get that survivor's guilt. I don't I don't get that. But it's I, I I'm just you know I'm like man I'm lucky, I'm fucking lucky to yeah. be to be to be here, to be here. I'm just lucky to be here. And then that. I mean this this event it's an it's an event that truly changed the trajectory of your life yeah. in every way. I mean I knowing who you are I I think it's safe to say you wouldn't be doing speaking engagements if it wasn't for Benghazi. You wouldn't be doing a whole lot of things. So do you ever think of what where would your life be at this moment 
if 9-11-2012 You know what? Happened. I would probably be one of those old guys still deploying. I would be. I'd be going overseas again and again and again. And um, so I, I, you, for my family's sake, I, I don't think it was a I, – I, I, God, like I said, God works in mysterious ways, brother. I think it was the path yeah. that was supposed to be. And I also think it was – because you would have been too stubborn. You would have been like, I have, I have to, to see yeah, this I, one I, thing. I got to go back. I, I got to do another trip. And I would never have been home. And it's hard enough because, I, I, you know, me and my 15-year-old are, are, are really learning each other now because I missed all his life. And seeing the stuff I missed with my 15-year-old, doing it with my 5-year-old, if I would have missed that with my 5-year-old when I would have been 80, I would have never forgave myself. So it was a blessing, man. And, and, and again, I found I made lemonade out of lemons doing all this other stuff. But yeah, I, I, I would never have done the speaking. I would never, nobody would have known who I was. Nobody, and I didn't want anybody. I wouldn't have wanted anybody to know who I was. But um, I yeah, I don't, because I think there's people who um I've interviewed or that we've had on who they've always wanted to write a book. Like, you know, Jack Carr, I know it's fiction, but his dream was to be an author. Um, at least as far as I know, you can correct me. No, you never had a dream. No, no, of, no. I want to write a book no, about no, my never, life. Never, so. not any of that. Never to be in the focal point, never be in the spotlight, never to be anything. But when, when I did that second one, the Ranger way and had people coming up to me saying, man, thank you for doing that. It made it worthwhile. But it was when I did it originally, that second one, I, the first one was, it was done as a team. We had to do it as a team. I felt like it was a necessity. People yeah. needed to know whether it was successful or not, whether it was made in a movie or not. It's never the plan. It was, this is what happened. This is the best way to do it. So we're not playing to partisan politics. This is what happened. And right here. Um, the second one was, okay, I'll do it. What the hell? I'll try it on my own. And I did it. And, and it just, it did well. And people are still appreciative that I wrote it. Um, so that's why I did the yep. third one too. Third one. But again, it comes to the point where I, just, I wanted to do one about other people as well. Yeah, brother. I, th none of this was ever planned, but I, I always uh, once I always let God take the wheel. I'm not controlling, so it's like, hey, do what do you need me to do? This okay? This is what I'm going to do, and I'm glad that I, I, I'm I couldn't I wouldn't have said this three or four years ago that I'm glad it happened and I'm glad it went this way, but now that I'm home a lot more and I'm able to experience time with my family and actually be a father and a husband, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad that it went this route. Yeah, because. Uh, I, I, there are times on 9-11 though where I'll sit back in the week before I'll, I'll, I'll be hurt because of the time I miss with my older kids. And, um, and I'm, I'm happy that I'm not missing that with my five-year-old and I'd have been, I, I'd, I'd have been an awful 80 year old man. I'd have just been a miserable, bitter old man. Not that I'm not already bitter, bitter earth. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I remember, remember that evening quite extensively in the next morning and i i remember the smells and i remember everything and it, it's it's uh and it's it's also so cool that you put out something that inspired so many people i mean the, you know the same thing we've said before in other uh, episodes but like at, at least for me i nerd out about this i think you do too like yeah, we yeah. have dave silvera on and he's like man what you guys did was so heroic i look up to like you know, I, you were listening, listening to corn years before then. Like to me, that's, that, and that's so why cool. that's why that's what makes it worthwhile. It really does. When somebody comes in or somebody that I, I may have, you know, that I've had part of my life, whether in their music and somebody's, oh, man, hell yeah. We like Andre Olofsky. We're in the Battle Line podcast. And that's, that's yeah, it, it does. It, to say that it doesn't make it. Oh, you know what? Maybe this is worth doing. 
and having a positive effect on people. It does. And it does. It's, 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 uh, it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make put me in awe. It just, it makes me smile. It's like, man, I used to listen to that dude. Man, I remember corn all the time. And now he's, now he's rocking the battle line podcast shirt and, we, and we're buddies. I mean, <laughs> it, it is cool. And it's not the name dropping cool. It's just cool because, because it's no, part no. of my, whether he, now he knows it, but whether he knew it or not at the time, he was part of my history coming up when I was deployed and he made me feel that music made me feel like I was back home when I was gone all the time. So it's good. It's kind of like a reciprocity thing that comes out of it all. And, uh, and, and, and you develop a new friend, you develop a, which Dave and I are friends now. We, we, we text probably about once a month. I haven't heard from him in a little while, but he's got his own thing going and he's got to get that new, the new music out, which is awesome. Man, his new group is. Yeah, they're great. They're really all. And I really don't say that just to say it because I've checked it out and like it every is. song they're putting out is excellent. And you also think, oh, it's just the drummer. You know what I mean? It, it's not like it's Jonathan Davis, but it ha- if you're into corn, it has that feel. But it actually is a little bit more of a commercial vibe that everybody could get into because not everybody is into Jonathan Davis's screaming and all that. I think a mainstream audience could Man, really I, dig. I, I, I can't wait till they get that album out. I, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm not, I'm going to spill it because he did send me it. So don't get mad. I haven't told anybody. Oh, nice. I mean, the, the new album, <laughs> it fuck, it's, it rocks and it needs to get out there. It's just right now with all the hippity bibbity virus stuff going on, they're able to get it out there. But I can't wait. It's gonna, it's gonna tear it up. You know, and, and same with Jimmy Allen. Same with same with Jimmy. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, the puddle of mud. Just I just listened, listened to some puddle of mud and hearing that guitar, and now putting a face with the guitar in the background, going damn, and hearing that, you know, yeah, yeah he he knew who I was. <laughs> it is. It's it's cool to say that, but. That's all attitude. I could think of it in other ways, but it's my attitude is that's, that's really cool. That and having a good, having a good, a positive mindset to to enjoy these things and and not not get an ego about it. Just be like, man, I, I used to listen to listen to these guys when I was sitting in the Helmand Helmand Province drinking coffee on top of a roof, my earbuds, and listening to Puddle of Mud. And I'm talking to Jimmy Allen, and he played me. Or <laughs> and Ben, you're right with Silvera, the the drums. I realize how important if you have a good drummer, you can tell, especially with Silvera, you can tell when it's him drumming because the way he hits. Yep. And I, you can tell. I can as soon I can tell. You can put drummers together, and as soon as I heard, I go, "Yeah, that's Silvera," and and he's good. Yeah. No, and, and you're right. It it isn't at all a name dropping thing. It it is just about like I respect people who are great at what they do, and if they like something that we do. I, it's uh, you know it just means a lot to me. It's it's not about like oh this guy has a name. That's that's definitely not what it's about to me. But and and it's also just the fact that we have people listening to this podcast. I love the I love that we have people on who have a positive mental attitude about everything that they're going through. I think you know you could this the I know you always say you hate being a public figure, but you do have some of that celebrity with like that comes along with who you are and what you did. And I think it's great to see you use it for positive because so many people get that celebrity and they use it to fuel hate. They use it to fuel divisiveness. And I know you've said, Oh, in the past, maybe I was a part of that, but I think like what we're doing now, yeah. people listen to this and hopefully they're inspired by something, you know, Damien Lewis talking about world war two veterans. Hopefully it inspires people to yeah. follow their dreams and, and, you know, conquer yeah, whatever right, right. they want. I, I, I agree. And, and, um, no, I, I was part of it, but you make mistakes and you learn, you know? And, and at that time I, I, I took stuff personal. It was. It was. It wasn't a political venue. I, I don't give two shits about politics. I just. I just. I took it personal. I let the anger get to me, and 
and it caused divisiveness. And you see what happens now with the country with people just divided left and right. We don't need to be like that. I don't have to agree with you. You don't have to agree with me, but we don't need to be throwing Molotov cocktails and shooting each other about it, man. Come on. Are you kidding me? We're going to be fine. Yep. I, we've all succeeded under Republican and Democratic presidents and their and congresses and congressmen and congresswomen and so forth. We have. You're going to succeed regardless whether who's in office or not. Are we losing our freedoms? Kind of bring that on ourselves, y'all. <laughs> I mean, we just you know, we just need to figure out that it's not that bad. Um, and turning off the news helps. And, and the being said, I wouldn't speak about it if I hadn't been a part of it. And you know me, and I I don't ever say anything unless I've experienced it. I do know that the media can drive you drive divisiveness. I was part of that. I was a big part of that. Um, but being able to see it now in retrospect, I'm like yeah, that's not the right thing. And you know what, Benghazi needs to be remembered. 9-11-2012 needs to be remembered as a positive. For sure. There's so many positive things that took place that night. Just overcoming adversity and courage and heroism and doing the right thing um, and faith that why not use the story for that where, where it should be. And I think the movie did a good job showing it that spec, not getting into the politics of it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, bro, that's, and, and I'm a lot happier and I'm a lot better person. And everybody would be a lot better people if they just pulled themselves out of their politics and just just treat a person as a person. You know, if you're, somebody's an asshole, you're an asshole. But, I, you know, I, I, I've been an asshole to you sometimes. You've been an asshole, but we're still buddies. I mean, it just, it just... <laughs> probably. Yeah, it's so fun. Like off the air, you know, because I can tell the audience, I mean, we're just people, you know, we always get along on the show, but like, yeah, off yeah. the air, every now and again, I'll say something that'll piss Chris off. Chris will say something that'll piss me off. And it, it's, I do realize we both get over it pretty quickly, you know, like that's, that's, how, that's the way to be because I genuinely, man, I do. And, and I've said it to you off the air, but like, you know, I respect the hell out of you. Are there times you're going to say something that I'm like, yeah, what the hell is this guy talking about? Of course, man. I feel that way with my parents, you know, who, whose house I'm at right now, but I love them and I respect them. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's just a part of life, man. And and I try, I, I know, and you do too, to not let the all the divisiveness going on get to me because it's going to get to all of us right now. I mean, we're living during an absolutely crazy time. I'm not going to pretend that like I have yeah. blinders and I'm not aware of everything going on. I mean, I do try to focus on the good, try to focus on things that, you know, could better my life. But yeah, we're both aware of everything going on in the world right now. It's, it's very bad out there, but you know, if that's all yeah. you stay stuck on, um, you can't really forge ahead. In, you in your own you life staying positive is how, you know, there's divisiveness going on because you've chosen to go the positive route. So yeah, of course we don't have blinders on. Yeah. We're just choosing to, handle that differently by trying to say pot well not trying we are being positive when everybody else is being negative in the hopes that and in the hopes that people will take lead take our examples and and start to be more positive and less less argumentative and less divisive and less that i have to be right on everything because i'm telling you right now nobody is right at everything in fact all of us are right on very very few things our ability to see those differences and learn from each other our rights and wrongs that, that allow us to be still the greatest country in the world. But we're, we're killing ourselves right now because one party has to be right, which is, it's, it's, it, that's incorrect. We can all be correct and all have to learn from each other and we can all be good to each other. And it, it's, it's possible. It's, 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 it's completely possible because, because I can do it. And I am not the most easy guy to get along with all the time. I am on the podcast. 
And when you see me publicly, maybe you see the commercial, but believe me, ask my wife. I am very hard to get along with off because I just be nice to you, but like, eh, son of a bitch. And if I can do it, y'all can do it. Believe me. It's funny though, because every time I'll say for the audience that Chris and I get into something, it usually is nothing to do with the two of us. It's like social media drama. And and we always talk about how much we hate that shit. And it really is true. Like Chris has never said anything that's really pissed me off. There's just always been something know, on it? social media that I'm like, and, and then, you, you know, you'll see. So, it, it really is the worst, man. That's why we always talk about getting, you know, if, if you're enjoying labor today, you know, wherever you are, um, go to the beach, go to the park, hang out with friends, family. Yeah, because I, I just, we both see the people where I'm like, how do you possibly post this one? You, I don't know what you do. It, it just, it's, it's a drug. I said it before. I'll say it again. Instagram, it's a drug. You, if you get hooked on it and it will make you miserable. I, I posted a couple things the last three days and I've never been, I haven't been on that much in, in a while and I could just feel it. I could feel myself going, starting to get sucked back into it. So what do I Everything you wrote yeah, is positive, it, though. I mean, that's I, why I, I, just, know, I don't see even you know. even being positive. You see yourself being sucked back into that world. Nope, get away from it, you guys. You got to break yourselves from it. Make it a point that you post and you get off it for four days or three days. Now, posting stuff over and over and over and over in the hopes that you're going to change somebody's mind by being negative. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. And that's negative. Yeah. Is that an optimal? Okay, that's a double negative. You're never going to change. <laughs> but you can change somebody's mind by being positive and just being open and being able to listen and, or your own mind might be changed a little bit, but you can. Yeah. It. And I don't even think when you, and when you say changing mind, at least for me, I don't even think it's about, I need to get this yeah, person you who's you voting for this guy to vote for this guy. I, Cause I don't really even care about that stuff as much anymore because I'm just not, yeah. I'm not yeah. happy with yeah, the trajectory yeah. of any of it. But uh, you know, I think it's just changing people's minds. to open. um you know, to, to do things in their own life that, that are that are good and uh, whether they're getting out and exercising and eating better or any of that stuff, man. I, I just think people are, are so uh, tied into whatever, as you always say, what the news media is saying, and that becomes the, the entirety of their life. You know, it's very hard right now to have a like you probably see it man, when you go out with people and you and you are discussing life. It's very hard not to hear about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or, and I'm like, I just want to talk about, I don't know, I, the Islanders right now. Or I, I don't even like want to discuss. There's people that, hey, well, what do you think about? The, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I want to go for a run. I, cause I, I don't, and I'll say, and people, oh, you don't care. No, I don't care. I don't give a shit about your politics. I don't give a shit about anybody's politics. I give a crap about my family. I give a crap about, being a better person, I give a crap about reading the Bible and, and making myself a better person, being a better father. But as far as politics, I don't care. So people don't ask me because I, I don't care. What if I <laughs> president? Well, what if he does? Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to cry about it and just stop living your life and ah! Or what if Trump becomes president? Okay, well, what if he does? That's the mindset. And that's how I lived when I was working overseas. I didn't care. I just, all right, so what if he does? Just far. What do we need to do now? Yeah. Uh, you know, and 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 um, I, I I agree, and that's why when we talk, and we I I'm glad we have differences because people can see that when we do have differences, that we still get along. We're not. Oh my God, this show's canceled. Where yeah. Is this but people write that in the reviews sometimes <laughs> it, too. 
People do write that in the reviews, you know, because of, of and it's, you know, the severity of the COVID stuff, which, by the way, I will say, as long as everything goes according to plan, we do have Diamond Dallas Page awesome. coming on later this oh, month. Hope, you know, and he will be the only guest who has gotten COVID. <laughs> so I kind of want to hear from yeah. his perspective what it was like, because he told me on the phone, he, he'll be the only guy we've had on. Is, even, had. even with that, and, and I would preface it, and so do you, that we live in different parts of the country, too. So even, even when we have the COVID oh, yeah. arguments, I always preface it, well, I'm not, I don't live in New York City. I don't live, I'm sorry, I don't live in New York. Or You always correct me. <laughs> See, when, when you say Omaha or you say Lincoln, I just say, yeah, because it's the same, right? But when you live in New sure, York, sure. Um, so you've seen that with that amount of people where I've been, you know, I, I because I'm not in a, I've been in a lot of metropolitan areas, but I'm not living in an area with that condense of a population. So there, there's always something where yeah, we don't, I don't really agree with you in, but again, I'm not seeing it from your perspective. And I think if anybody gets something from the show is that you have sure. to look at other people's perspectives and everything around it. Where you even said to me, yeah, I, I believe it, but you're right. You live in Nebraska. You don't have as many. So so when we do argue, we always preface it, though, we do. And, and it's good that we do. I think we do it on purpose. We do it. It's like, well, you know, you, we are in different areas. We're seeing it from a different side or different angles. Um, I'm still right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but that's and that's how people should be. People should be on right all the time. Well, maybe not geographically. Where are you? Look at everything around you, and and look at where that person is, and look what they're going on through their lives. What experiences they have, and 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 then make your judgment. Get all the information. One thing you're big on, and I know you are, is gathering all the information. I am big on gathering information. And being involved, that you're you're big on gathering information too before you make a decision on anything. Don't 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 clickbait of anything. Course. We don't clickbait. We never. No, no. I, I'm always yeah. I'm always cognizant of that. I don't like to put out, and I'll always yeah. fact check yeah. anything we put out. But to be honest, we haven't been putting out a whole lot of uh, even like news and, stories. It's really yeah. been like you at the range, me at Bear Mountain last week. That's you know. But anyway, um, anything else before no, we get I, out of here? I just, going over I, two I hours say so. because you know before you're going to 911 come up after you hear this episode here um just to everybody that's been real supportive of me to the lady that and I talked about the lady that actually saved my life at the Dallas International Airport it was years ago where I did I was going down a slippery slope it was about a year into the book and the movie coming out and I I hated my life I hated it I I wasn't working I, I and I was doing the speaking and and I hated it and and I remember and I was you know, I was divorced from my wife. I, I become estranged from my family and we're divorced. I wasn't seeing my family a whole bunch. And, and I remember in the DFW airport and I remember, and I wish I remembered her name. God, I just couldn't get her name. It was just an old lady. And I had my hat pulled down too. And I'm looking down like this. I don't want nobody to recognize me. And, um, and I just was going, I was going to kill myself. When I got home. Uh, I was like, I'm done. And she come up to me and she goes, or she goes, are you, you're Tana. And I said, ma'am. Because I hadn't been used to civilians calling me Tana. It really hadn't. Are you, you Tana? You, you Benghazi guy? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, ma'am, I am. I don't like it. And in my head, I'm going, fuck, here it goes again. I, I don't want to talk about it. But that's something in my head. She goes, don't stop talking. She goes, I believe you. And that, that helped me not want to do what I was going to do when I got home. And I still remember that. That that put me on a path. I still work, took me years to work through, but it put me on the path to Okay, I can do something positive with this. I just had to figure out, it took me another two years to figure out how to do it um, and to get rid of some toxic people in my life, which I needed to get rid of. But 
that lady saved my life. And she put me on the path of where we are now with the podcast. If it wasn't for her, I seriously doubt we would be having this podcast. So wherever you are, ma'am, thank you. And I'm happy now and I'm happy with my family and I'm happy being a dad and a father and I'm, and we're in a good spot and we're, we're here doing positive things. So one little word from somebody can save a change of person's life. So you can say something positive, just like that lady that just took her 30 seconds and it's changed my life forever. So don't be afraid if you see somebody down guys to go up to them and say, say something positive because you, you might affect the rest of their lives and you might save their lives too. So thank you. I just want to say thank you to that lady out there. I wish I said, I remember we got her name. Damn it. <laughs> Maybe yeah, one day she might. She, she might. Like, hey, but, I'm know. that lady. Give her a hug. Hopefully, it's not so. You know, now <laughs> someone might take credit for it. I was that lady, but they're not really stolen old lady Valor. Old lady Valor. Don't worry, my wife screens all that. She knows. She's got a sixth sense. She 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 knows. But um, so thank you all, especially coming up this month. This this week, it is it's hard on me, but that's one good thing that that I remember from after the event. Uh, that that when I was in a bad spot, so yeah. And thanks, Ian, for doing the podcast, man. We how many how long are we, how many episodes are we up to now? You know, well, dude, we uh, how many episodes? Wait, we say it again. Oh, how many episodes? Oh, um, I'm like I'm losing my train of thought. You know what I could? I could just, just approximately. Um, yeah, we're at forty-seven. Awesome. Forty-seven. Yeah, still going strong. So uh, I I guess uh, we have one more Fort Scott. One more Fort Scott read, and then um, Hey, Pablo Schreiber, you better get on the show, damn it. I'm going to come hunt you down, you big mofo, some bitch. We got to get Pablo Schreiber on the show. Absolutely, man. He's getting he's getting absolutely jacked. Which he's going to be, though. I know he's not going to be Master Chief, but I I, I wonder who he's going to be on Halo. But you got to get him on. Love Pablo. Good guy. He'll let you know, I'm sure. Yeah, we got to get him on. Uh, wrapping things up here, Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammo was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring you're going to receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available through privately owned businesses in every state, as well as direct online through fortscottmunitions.com. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. I did realize that's not for recurring orders. Someone let me know. Um, so if you're getting auto ship, can't use the promo code. Okay. People have tried. But if you're doing a one-time order, use it. And they're doing a, a giveaway, at least right they, now, they for Tonto's that's, Toolbox. That's the only two left. Actually, I've sold them out. That's the only two left. And they won't be made again. The last two. Get on it. If if it's still up by the time this goes up. But, um, yeah, Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. So we went long this episode. But you know what? You weren't here last week, and we only went like an hour or so. Uh. Okay, I love Damien. Damien's awesome. I, I could have a beer. I could have a pint with that limey. Limey B, man. He, he his stories. Read, definitely read his book, and his 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 emotion and his emotion and his passion comes through in his writing. So, and man, it, SAS guys are 
much respect for special air service guys and special boat service guys. They are they are hardcore, hardcore individuals and great guys. Great guys to have on our side as a team, definitely. That's all for this episode of the Battleline Podcast, but we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never quit. <laughs>